Welcome to episode 16 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today we are reviewing the John Woo-directed Mission Impossible 2. A quick warning that the F-bombs are flying pretty hard in this one, so if that's not your thing, or you're listening around a child, mm, bit of discretion is probably advised. But without further ado, I give you MI2, the WAF edition. Warning, the following secure broadcast has been classified woo as fuck. Repeat, the following secure broadcast has been classified woo as fuck. Please act accordingly. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Soto. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. You expect me to talk? Yeah, baby! <laughs> Coming to you from an undisclosed location with a ridiculously overpopulated pigeon population, it's a Central Intelligence Cinema Podcast. I'm Jason Grieber, and with me, as always, Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason, for that warm and fuzzy introduction, and welcome back to Central Intelligence Cinema. We got one hell of a review coming for you today, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Is this... Oh boy. So okay, so this movie it is a spy movie, but it's also part hair product commercial. <laughs> it's part <laughs> it's part telenovela. <laughs> but if it's one thing, it is 100% who as fuck. That's right, ladies. Amen. <laughs> it is woo as fuck, man. And that's right, the movie that we are speaking of, of course, is Mission Impossible 2. The John Woo <laughs> Spectacular. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll go with it. Go with that. I mean, it's a spectacular. It <laughs> it's a spectacular in the sense that it's so John Woo <laughs> that it's a John Woo and, spectacular. I wouldn't yet, say it's a spectacular because, movie. <laughs> because it's so John Woo, is it spectacular or is it just a John Woo movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> but uh, oh man, I'm I'm excited to talk about this just for the pure train wrecking goodness of this movie. <laughs> it, just, it makes no sense. <laughs> it really doesn't. Uh, you just have you have to buy in on the rocks and just hang on for the ride. Yeah, <laughs> I mean there there is a part of me that just enjoys this movie just for. <laughs> what it is it's just because it's so silly it's like you can't possibly take it seriously as i mean i i almost view this the way i view like a like an austin powers movie like Mm -hmm. it's it's that off the rails but uh yeah it's it is if you were going to use a bond comparison it is the a view to a kill of the mission impossible franchise (laughs) oh it's the die another day of mission impossible (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something else, man. All right, well, should we get into the propers? Yes, let's do it. 
Good morning, Mr. Hunt. Sorry I barged in on your vacation. Well, Mr. Hunt, I don't quite know where to begin. Welcome to Australia, mate. This ain't funny. I don't think I can do it. I mean, it'll be difficult. Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult to be a walk in the park for you. Okay, so Mission Impossible 2, released in 2000, in the year... In the year 2000! (laughs) (laughs) So, there was a four-year gap between uh, this one and the the first one, directed, of course, by John Woo of John fucking Woo fame. (laughs) Yes, uh, yes, yes. (laughs) The first cut of this movie actually clocked in at three and a half hours... But Paramount balked at the length and told him that the final length could not exceed two hours, which probably actually partly explains why it's such a, a mess, why it makes no sense at all. It could be. They're, they're, <laughs> two hours, if they left an hour and a half of that movie on the cutting room floor, there's yeah. a whole other movie there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, although I got to say, I, I'm willing to bet that at least an hour of it is just slow-mo footage of I was going to say what of, if it was just Tom Cruise's that, hair <laughs> exactly what what if that extra hour and a half was just scenes that got sped up to normal speed and it made it 2 hours <laughs> right <laughs> they just yeah they just cranked it up to to, <laughs> to 30 frames a second instead <laughs> yeah so uh another fun fact actually Oliver Stone was the first director attached to this movie uh, in the period after Mission Impossible's release. Um, and he reportedly wrote a treatment, but backed out due to scheduling conflicts uh, resulting from Tom Cruise's prolonged stint on Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. Funny little thing on a uh, on another podcast, Light the Fuse, I, I found out a little bit of information about that, and it actually sounded pretty damn cool. I would it's- I would like to see an Oliver Stone spy movie. Yeah, it sounds like it went a little sci-fi towards the end of the script, but nonetheless, I, I'd be curious to know more about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, or yeah. See well, that, or see that happen. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I'm pretty sure that, that that must have been after the two uh, Tom and Oliver Stone collaborated on uh, Born on right. the Fourth of July. So that must have come out of that experience. You know that, that Tom will try and work with other directors if he likes working with them. So yeah. Uh, and he does tend to, I, I've noticed that Tom Cruise tends to get kind of clingy with whoever he's working with at the time, um, <laughs> as well as personal relationships. But, you know, <laughs> just a, just an observation. We love you, Tom Cruise. Don't, don't come after me. <laughs> um, the movie was initially rated R, um, but was re-rated PG-13 after many of the action scenes were cut and the violence was trimmed down considerably, which is kind of disappointing, to be honest. I would have been yeah. curious to see that. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm glad that in our current state of cinema that our ratings are not such a bad thing anymore. Yeah, there's not nearly the stigma. Exactly. But um, th- there's part of me that wishes I could have seen the R-rated version, and there's part of me that's glad that they did you know, sort of bring it back a little bit, just, just for the fact that it is a mission impossible movie. And I don't, 
when I think Mission Impossible movies, I don't necessarily think R-rated movies. And it's Mm-mm. not and it's not something I'm like actively craving to see. No, and I guess at the, at its at its finest point, these are just supposed to be extensions of a TV show. Right, exactly. And so you should be able you should do on these what you could do on regular TV. So for the right. most part. I mean, I like Which the fact you, you that could they do take much a, more. I like the fact that they yeah. I like the fact that they take a little bit of liberty with it cuz TV can be quite limiting, but yeah. But you're right, you're right. I, TV now is different. TV now you can you can get away with a lot, especially on think, FX. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I don't think anybody would be interested in watching a three and a half hour John Woo movie, at least not the normal theater goer. <laughs> no. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> listen, I've I've watched some John Woo movies in my time, and I don't think I've ever sat through a three and a half hour John Woo movie. And I don't think I could handle it. I think I'd be exhausted. <laughs> I was exhausted just watching this. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, but uh, yeah, getting into into some more here. Um, Bruce Geller has a credit because of his work on the TV show. Uh, the story was by Team Star Trek. <laughs> um, mm. Ronald D. Moore and uh, Brandon Braga. Um, Ronald mm-hmm. D. Moore worked on both Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica, like a lot. And Brandon Braga worked on lots of Star Trek. Um, Robert Town did the screenplay, who also curiously enough, did an episode of Man from Uncle. He did the screenplay for Chinatown, Days of Thunder, The Firm, and the first Mission Impossible among a really long line of credits. Also, according to Robert Town, much of his script was written around action scenes that John Woo told him he wanted to be able to direct in the movie, which sort of makes sense. Um, In a Woo film, for sure. Well, and even for Mission Impossible, that's sort of Mission Impossible's M.O., they kind of come up with big uh, set pieces and then build the story around it anyway. That's sort of been their formula, actually, for a long time, especially Rogue Nation and, and Fallout, I know for a factor, are largely set pieces that they then built a story around. I mean, thankfully, they have Christopher McQuarrie there to, you know, sort of wrangle the script together because he's such a right. good story. He's such a good storyteller that he, he's capable of doing it that way. And still making it make sense. <laughs> Whereas this one, <laughs> maybe not quite as much. <laughs> well, you know, and it, well, you could you could tell that had to be the driver because I mean, town has written stuff right yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah, Chinatown. Yeah, Chinatown's a classic. Sake. Days of Thunder. I mean, I'm looking. Heaven can wait. An underrated comedy, if you ask me. But I mean, Parallax View. He knows how to write spy stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just this is not the sort of script I would expect from the caliber of writer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it. I feel like this is just you're bringing in people from like wildly different corners of the movie making world. Yes. And they don't necessarily are gelling real great. And they're just sort of trying to force themselves to gel when yeah, there's a lot I, of there's a lot lost in translation, I, I'm thinking. It's true. I mean, you know, I think people have said that about Wu's films before is that, uh, you know, he's bringing that Hong Kong action movie ethic to American films. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't quite translate as well. Right. Because, I mean, if you watch, you know, Hard Boiled or The Killer, I mean, those are great movies and they make sense and (laughs) it all seems to work. But when when you try and bring him over and make movies with Christian Slater and... (laughs) <laughs> and Nicolas Cage, things go a little 
a little sideways. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, we, we had talked about this before earlier before the podcast, but, you know, Ron Moore and Brandon Braga were Brandon Braga basically ran the Trek franchise after um, Gradbury sort of faded away a little bit. They, he kind of became mm-hmm. anointed as the keeper of the Trek. Right. Um, and so he was involved in almost all the productions all the way up until Enterprise. Um, and Ron Moore uh, who I think started writing on Next Generation, if basically got to the point where he was—he wasn't a showrunner, but he was making a lot of the input into it. And so we were joking, or I was joking, because it's like this sounded like it was more of a Star Trek episode plot or right. a Star Trek movie plot that somebody co-opted to make into a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> you know, the Enterprise is on its way to stop a deadly virus on planet. Act you five, and only Picard and his crew of stalwart adventurers can save them from the terrible Chimera virus. <laughs> right. It turns out to be Romulans or something, you know. But, right. Uh, now we're just now we're just on the planet Australia. <laughs> right. So somebody took that script and said, "Okay, we're gonna screw in some John Woo here. We're gonna bolt in some John Woo there. We're gonna add a little like, Tom okay. Cruisiness here. Exactly, and a little, you know, a little." Uh, uh, a telenovela yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we're ready to go. Uh, one, thing I, one thing I did want to point out about uh, Mr. Town, that particular episode of the man from uncle, he film was named. Are you ready for this? Okay. The dove affair. Oh Jesus. Of course it was. <laughs> so that's how he got the writing gig. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. John Wu saw that and went sign him. <laughs> <laughs> Get him. <laughs> Get him now. So uh, photography wise, uh, the uh, director of photography was Jeffrey L. Kimball, who did uh, Top Gun, True Romance, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Jacob's Ladder, <laughs> Wild Things. <laughs> and um, Great ma- cinematography on that movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess... Uh, I also read here that uh, Wu clashed with the original cinematographer, who was Andrew Lesney, when Wu felt Lesney was unable to keep up with his shooting style of multiple cameras and shots and <laughs> all the crash, the crash zooms that he's got going on. So, so Lesney was eventually replaced with with Jeffrey Kimball. So that's that. I will say, for all the for all the faults of this movie, there is some great photography in this movie, actually. Yes. I, I would I would say that that man did his job. So kudos to him. By the numbers, this is so puzzling to me. This movie did so well. <laughs> like financially. It's what? <laughs> the budget for this movie was 120 million. And it made $549.5 million worldwide and was the highest grossing movie of 2000. The two closest competitors were behind by over $100 million and were Gladiator and Castaway. Those are big-ass movies, yeah. dude. <laughs> and they are better-ass movies. Oh, yeah, they're way better. <laughs> <laughs> also, weirdly, MI2 did better financially than both 1 and 3 by quite a bit. And it wasn't until Ghost Protocol came along that MI2 lost its number one slot. That is crazy. I mean, I kind of get it with MI3 just because I watched that recently and God, it's so dark. 
yeah, so the dumb. tone it went a completely different way tonally because yeah. Abrams was having a bad depressive day or something when he made it. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he just um, broke up with somebody. I don't know. He he was in his dark, serious Spielberg period, you know. Right. As opposed to his bright, sunshiny ET period um, <laughs> that followed. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's. I wonder how much of that worldwide box office was, you know, the Southeast Asia, China area. You know, that's a very good point. I'm sure that the Wu fans in in China and Japan came out in numbers. I'm sure a lot of that, a lot of that is is credit to that. But I just can't believe it did better than Gladiator. Seriously, Gladiator's a classic. I like, mean, I that's a t- great, great movie. If Look, I see I Gladiator, I, yeah, me too. I will watch both of those movies at any point in time. I see them on TV if I don't have anything else to do. Very if MI2 so. came on TV, I would chase the channel until I found whatever was on the next channel. Like if it was people yodeling on mountaintops, I would just watch Yodelay He Who instead of, oh, my God, woo. And I would move on. I would move on. <laughs> so as far as music goes, um, Hans Zimmer did the score. which And? Very un Yeah, it's very rock. It's uh, it's very uh, there's a lot of a lot of guitars going on with it. Yeah, and a lot of there's a lot of gladiator in some of those moments too, especially with the choral singers. Oh, yeah, I know that was the other thing that I thought, which I wasn't sure if it was like if is that Hans' influence or is that John Woo asking Hans to get choral singers? Because no, it sounded super gladiator y, which he okay. also did. Yeah. I think that he was that was just the phase he was in at that point, too. That was what he was putting in his music. Okay, and so that was, was like, of... I, I like angel singing, let's do it. <laughs> that was sort of the flavor of the month, maybe when, yes. they, when they decided to do all that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then on the actual soundtrack, they went full hard rock. Like the mm-hmm. soundtrack, the soundtrack has got Limp Biscuit, Metallica, Rob Zombie, the Butthole Surfers, Foo Fighters, and Chris Cornell. Like, uh, and that Limp Biscuit song is just, uh, <laughs> God, uh, it's just so. It just gives it such a dated feel when I hear yeah. when I hear Limp Biscuit in there. I'm like, oh God, nobody wants to hear Limp Biscuit. Nobody wants to hear that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Limbiscuit fans. Really, honestly, if there's anybody listening to our podcast that's a big fan of Limbiscuit, I would be shocked. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean we want to exclude you, Limbiscuit. That's fans. right. If you that's are right. listening, this podcast doesn't just bash on Limbiscuit all day long. We talk yeah. about lots of other things. We bash on everything, <laughs> everything, that's including right. ourselves on numerous occasions. That's so, right. So don't, if you don't have, worry. So and really, if you do have an issue with it, like you should email us, and we will read the email on our next episode, <laughs> and we will apologize to you on that episode for being such Limbiscuit haters. That's right. <laughs> so getting into the. Uh, the who's who of this movie, Tom Cruise, obviously, who was 38 when this was released, finally looks about 25. <laughs> um, maybe it's the longer, maybe, maybe it's the longer hair. I don't know, <laughs> but I actually think his Tom Cruisiness was ratcheted up just a, l- a little bit in this one from the last one. But I, I kind of think that's by Wu's design. Mm-hmm. I actually think John Wu wanted that more smarmy over smiley overconfident cocky version of tom cruise for this movie 
Yeah, because he Nick he he gets picked on for it in the movie by Ambrose. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, which makes perfect sense that yeah, why you would have that in there. As far as the quote unquote Bond girls, obviously, we've got uh Tandaway Newton as Nia Hall. And funny little thing about this, uh Nicole Kidman actually suggested that Tandaway Newton be the love interest for Ethan Hunt after she worked with her on uh this the movie uh, flirting. I haven't even heard of this movie until I did these notes. Obviously, a very big, <laughs> uh, uh, a big uh, production by some very large uh, movie production company. Not an indie film at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, but uh, man, whether you call her Tandaway or whether you call her Tandy. She's fantastic in this movie. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so young. Oh. I mean, not that not that she's older by any by old by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't really start seeing her come into movies until maybe the last 10 years. Right. And so, you know, she looks like she looks like a baby in this. Yeah. Like I mean, like when I looked at it in IMDb, she's like 27 and it's like, no way, she's 18. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she oh. She looks unbelievable, though. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> if there's a reason to still watch this movie, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I suppose that 30-minute film would probably be better than the final finished uh, two-hour version of it. Right. So, uh, moving on, we've got uh, Anthony Hopkins, strangely uncredited, um, as Mission Commander Swanbeck, although maybe he didn't want his name on this. <laughs> One has to wonder. Yeah. Um, we've got Ving Rames back as Luther. I will say, if I'm being critical here, I f- I'm a little irritated that Ving Rames feels like just sort of the comic relief in this movie. I feel like he's very, he's very underutilized. And yeah. I, I, that to me is a crime. Yeah. He, I feel like he's just this sort of caricature of who he should be in these movies. Like he's yeah, just sort of he's just sort of there to deliver punchlines and 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 be sort of a stereotype. Whereas like in the other mm-hmm. ones, he's he's a much more fleshed out character. And one has to wonder maybe the one and a half hours sitting on the cutting room floor, maybe there was more Luther involved in it. Yeah, maybe, who knows? I mean, maybe they had a, a total B story that included Luther, so it's, it's hard to know. Because the character has never been, I, I, the character's never been treated this way in any of the, in the, he wasn't this way in the previous film right. and any of the subsequent films. So yeah. it almost feels like that in order to keep his vision, Wu had to get rid of any ancillary stuff because this movie feels very bare bones from a character development standpoint. Yes. And, and it's very Tom Cruise centric. Um, yes. It is not the, Anytime that you see like team player type stuff going on in this movie, it feels very throwaway. It feels very like secondary and just sort of an accoutrement to everything else. It's not really the main dish. Um, And which sort of leads me to the next thing. John Polson as a walking Australian stereotype, uh, (laughs) the character of Billy Baird, who's just every single time you see Billy Baird, hey, mate. Oh, good. Do- you know, <laughs> throw a shrimp on the Bobby, you know, the whole, all that bullshit. Exactly. It's just yeah. heaven forbid that we have like an Australian that's, you know, sophisticated and, you know, well-spoken and, you know, just <laughs> three dimensional. <laughs> I was taken to calling him the proto Benji. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, the prototype 
uh, was significantly flawed compared to the final design. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Very much so. And then we've got uh, DeGray Scott as Sean Ambrose, the villain in this, the former IMF uh, member who, and th- now this is, IMDb has a lot of a lot of things in the in the trivia that we don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly, according to IMDb, DeGray Scott lost the role of Wolverine because of his commitment to this movie. I don't know if that's a real thing. <laughs> Jason's shaking his head over there. That seems so improbable. Yeah. I think Hugh Jackman was a too known a quantity at that point. That and, he's they would too, go, and he's way better. So, well, yeah. I, I mean, this guy's really good at, at smoldery looks. Sure. So, you don't really want smoldery in your Wolverine. Right. He's got a charming <laughs> Scottish accent, but that's, mm-hmm. yeah. So we've got uh, Brendan Gleeson as the corporate CEO, McCloy, who I love Brendan Gleeson and just about everything he's ever been. Oh, yeah. I, f- oh, I feel yeah. like he's a great bit player. So it was just nice to see him in there because he always does a good mm-hmm. job. On the same note, uh, Rade Sherbegia, I, th- I believe I said that correct, as Dr. Nikorovich. Is that, did I say that right? Yeah. Dr. Nikorovich, I think. Yeah, I got nothing for you on Russian names. <laughs> I'll tough. run with whatever you have. That, that one's tough. But Rade Sherbegia is almost unrecognizable in this movie as the doctor. I'm so used to seeing him as Boris the Blade and Snatch um, <laughs> as this like hardened Russian, you know, mobster spy guy. Mm-hmm. It was so weird to see him as this like, you know, mad scientist doctor type character. Right. It, was, it was weird. He was, uh, and speaking of, we may actually see Mr. Uh, Sherbegia in a future episode of CIC because he was also in The Saint apparently mm, oh yeah that's right so it might be it might be cool to see what, where he pops up there <laughs> well that's pretty much it unless you have anything else we'll jump into the the one last thing i think i think that they did a disservice by not crediting tom cruise's hair as its own uh, acting credit in the movie <laughs> yeah. but uh <laughs> yeah we, we can seriously wow what was the I, that had to be a was that a woo decision was that a well, you know, I, I I meant to look at that before. I I was wondering how far off that was from uh, The Last Samurai. Well, and he was also uh, in the middle of doing Eyes Wide Shut, so I wonder if that was... But he some... had short hair at Eyes Wide Shut, didn't he? I don't I don't think I ever saw Eyes Wide Shut all the way through, so... Oh, wait, mm. Eyes Wide Shut was much earlier, wasn't it? I don't remember. 99, it was the year before. Okay, so maybe, and... I don't know. Last act or last samurai didn't come out till 2003, so I, I don't know. That was a choice, it sounds like. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it was a bad choice, yeah, it was a wrong choice. <laughs> Decisions were made, yeah. All right, well, uh, let's let's uh, let's get into this thing, yes. All right, so the pre title sequence, strangely enough, might have actually been the most high minded. <laughs> might might have the most high-minded concepts in the entire movie. <laughs> or at least they were the only things that weren't cut out. <laughs> so, right. So we begin in Sydney, Australia, and we see this big building, and there's a, a Chiron that says Biosite Pharmaceutical. And we cut to this lab, and it's immediately so dramatic. There's like greens and blues because apparently all biotech labs have to have dark green... You have to have blue and green like hues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no like 
just regular white light in there. It's just it <laughs> always has to be green and blue light. If you're and, gonna and make if you're gonna make a virus, if you're gonna make a super virus, yes. it, the lights have to be blue and green. <laughs> and completely too dark to do any kind of actual work in. Yeah, seriously. How are you gonna be able to see anything that you're doing or write anything down or <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway? So we see Dr. Nekovich is in the lab and we hear his VO talking underneath him as he's in this lab doing something. And he's talking about uh, the chimera virus in terms of Greek mythology, which basically goes that uh, Bellerophontes was the hero who his enemies tried sending to his death by way of ordering him to kill the sea monster chimera. However, uh, Bellerophontes was able to tame Pegasus and with his help killed chimera. So anyway, the story is all the way of saying that he created that they created a virus so that they could create a cure so they could make money. Moving on. So, <laughs> so the VO is all this audio letter to quote Dimitri, who we find out is one of Ethan's cover names. Um, and then we see the doctor inject the virus into himself and essentially has 20 hours before he can't reverse the virus. So then we see him walk out of the building and we see the kids doing ring around the roses. And this is an allusion to Chimera causing a pandemic and that according to popular belief, ring around the rosies or roses or whatever was a kid's song based on the medieval black plague. And in this theory, the ring around the roses represented a ring of people around a grave with roses on it and pocket full of posies refers to people carrying flowers in their pockets during the plague to combat the stench of the corpses in the street. So lovely. There's there's my uh, explanation, all of that. But yeah, really, like compared to the rest of the movie, it's about as high minded as it's going to get. <laughs> yeah, this the, the whole pre title thing is really like a, a symbolistic short film, right? Yeah, <laughs> that that if you didn't tie it into another movie with some small edits at the end, could have stood alone on its own merit. Yeah, it could have been a totally different movie. <laughs> but the third <laughs> act just, <laughs> wow. Okay. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so then the doctor gets on a plane to Atlanta with a virus <laughs> injected into him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he gets on a commercial plane to Atlanta to try and meet with Ethan slash Dimitri, only to be sitting right next to him on the plane, or is he? Uh, so then we get the line where uh, they say, I'm sorry and you're sorry, which is a Dr. Strangelove reference, mm -hmm. um, which implies that the doctor doesn't know Ethan's real name, but the Ethan that's sitting next to him on the plane is sort of staring at him blankly and doesn't really know what he's getting at, which is kind of our first clue that something isn't right, and maybe this isn't actually Ethan sitting next to him. And then we hear overhead an overhead warning from the captain, and suddenly the oxygen masks drop, and we basically find out that the, that the plane is being hijacked and that the masks don't have oxygen in them. They have nitrous oxide pumping into them to put everybody to sleep. So once everybody's knocked out, they set the plane on a course for destruction with the autopilot and <laughs> you're just shaking your head over there. I, I, I keep going. Yeah. So Ethan comes back and he kills the doctor. But that's, of course, when Ethan, quote unquote, Ethan pulls the mask off to reveal that it's Sean Ambrose. And then he pulls the little voice thing, voice sticker. Which that is such a cool thing because they have a continued talking like Tom Cruise for like three seconds. And he's like, yeah, hold on. 
that is kind of a fun part of this. I mean, yeah, I appreciate when they have things like that, where it's obviously science fiction, it's not real, but at least they hold to the rules of it. Whereas, whereas most of the stuff that's in this movie do not hold to any rules whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So he pulls the mask off and it's Sean Ambrose. They take uh, the doctor's Bellerophon, which is in his bag, which is the uh, vaccine to this virus. And then they skydive out of the plane before it crashes into a mountain. But I just want to go back (laughs) real quick. (laughs) <laughs> and state once again that this movie never addresses the fact that this man is contagious with the most deadly virus. This virus. Well, well, okay. We don't know the contagiousness of it. I think they say that there's a 20 hour window before it becomes contagious. Is that what it is? I think that's what they're implying, which is why he's able to get on a plane and fly barely in that time frame, but also that Tandy Newton is able to, uh, move around. Naya is able to move around as long as she is before right. uh, she causes her. I think that's the the conceit that they're using to prevent people from just dying left and right. You got 20 hours before you can kill anybody. I just think that's horseshit. If you're going to die. Total horseshit. Because the thing is, is here, like you're dead by 34 hours. Right. So, so you're going to tell me that it's not contagious until over halfway through the cycle. That's bullshit. Hey, like uh, I'm no virologist. <laughs> I'm not. I know, that, I know that in this day and age, many people like to think that they are. <laughs> but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when you get infected with something, the flu or some other things, it can, <laughs> it can take it can take a day or two before you start to feel symptomatic. Sure. But from what I remember reading in my old biology class or something back in school, you could be contagious. Before you start demonstrating symptoms, then as we all know in this current situation we're all in, you could have no symptoms and still be contagious, contagious to other people. Right. So you're basically buying into a premise that this is so genetically engineered that it's designed to wipe people out within a time frame that allows other people to get out before it happens. Right. I'll buy it if you're going to stick with the internal logic of it. Sure. Why not? I remember this might have started off as a Star Trek episode. So So in the 24th century, you can do anything. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So, yeah. Anyway, so I'll move on. So the plane crashes (laughs) into a mountain and Sean and his group of thugs or whatever, they all parachute out. And the yeah, plane crashes out of an airplane of an airplane going 700 miles an hour sure. or something close. Sure. And it'll die instantly jumping out of the hole. <laughs> of course. At the bottom of the plane. Of course. Sure. 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 <laughs> sure. I think it's considering. Okay. Actually, it makes sense. The fact that this movie used to be rated R and then they changed it to a PG-13 rating. It makes more sense that they would be willing to kill a whole plane full of people even if they made it look like an accident, like that's a pretty brutal opening to a movie to like, Oh yeah. To have a terrorist, you know, wipe out an entire plane full of people. So it was just sort of, that part was a little shocking to me actually. Sure. Like if you think about it that way, but anyway, we'll move on. So from here we cut to uh, old Tommy boy and he's doing that mountain climbing thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of interesting that they start creeping in the credits before everything else. That's, it's a very un Mission Impossible thing to do, but um, mm-hmm. we start seeing the credits rolling, and and he's doing his climbing, and you hear a song that is incredibly similar to Ico Ico, 
which as we all know came from the movie rain man which (laughs) tom cruise was also in which i'm like is it that's got to be on purpose it's got to be on purpose that it's similar at least in melody i know the words are very different please don't write in and tell me that because i'm aware of that (laughs) anyway so that's playing and he gets to the top of the mountain he's all happy with himself and then we see this helicopter fly in um (laughs) this helicopter flies in and for some reason tom doesn't seem too bothered by it he seems to know what the deal is and this guy in the helicopter shoots this little missile thing dumb (laughs) shoots this little missile thing onto the top of the mountain where he's where he's at (laughs) and Tom walks over to it and he opens it up and there's sunglasses inside. Dumb! <laughs> and uh, so he puts, he puts the sunglasses on and then it identifies him as Ethan Hunt, yada, yada, yada. And we get the mission. So the mission is to recover the, quote, essential item, Chimera, which he doesn't know what that even is at this point. Mm. And that his uh, third member must be Nia Hall, a professional thief who, of course, we later find out is Ambrose's ex-girlfriend. After which, he's supposed to meet Swanbeck in Seville for his mission assignment. Uh, wait, didn't he just get the assignment? So, anyway, it's just a little weird. Further but, details. Yes, yes. Hmm. So, then we get the, the little line at the end, which is kind of fun, I guess, where it says, please tell us where you're going on holiday next time. And then Tom says out loud to no one, if I tell you where I'm going, I won't be on holiday, which becomes this sort of theme that runs right so anyway so then we get into the title graphics and it's dragons and fuses and fuses and dragons (laughs) also the least faithful (laughs) the least faithful graphic open to the whole tv show style opening theme oh absolutely i mean compared to the one that they told they did in the first movie which was spot on yeah this thing is just like it's a movie title i mean it doesn't tie anything back into uh uh mission impossible at all Right. No, it's it's definitely just I I hate to say it, but I feel like they did that specifically to tell the audience this is John Woo's Mission Impossible. That's why you're seeing dragons. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's uh, just I feel like it's really on the nose. Well, I think that the, the dragons are more about the chimera. Okay, yeah, true. But yeah, it, it just it's it's a John Woo title. It's sequence. It's not it's not a Mission Impossible type right. sequence. Now, and and I will say that I'm actually not the biggest fan of Mission Impossible title graphics and doing that whole TV super tease intro. I'm such a Bond guy that I'm used to, you know, really flashy, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> silhouetted girls. And, uh, and uh, Ben, Ben, it's not a James Bond movie. I, it's I, a Mission Impossible movie. I, I, I am aware of that, but um, you, know, you, you, would, you wouldn't put a flashy Bond beginning at the beginning of a Mission Impossible movie or you'd get what we saw in Mission Impossible 2, just saying. Yeah. No, I know. I, I am aware of that, but that, I just... <laughs> that, was the, that was the editor in the booth, by the way. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, like, while I'm not the biggest fan of the whole Super Tease graphic open for that Mission Impossible sticks with, I certainly prefer that over what we got on this one. No, no doubt. No doubt. So, and I will say that they have gotten better with time. The, the Mission Impossible title graphics. Like, I think that the ones in like four through six are great, actually. So we open up on Seville, Spain, and we hear flamenco music playing. 
and we uh, get that stompy dancing. I know we get the silly wipe from the from the red dress to to bring you into the scene where we go into this Spanish dance hall, and apparently this whole meetup scene of Ethan meeting or sort of stalking Naya from across the room was entirely yeah. Tom Tom Cruise's idea, and that he had always wanted to perform a quote simple boy meets girl sequence, which okay. I just I just think it's so silly that they use that flamenco music here and there in the movie. They sort of pepper it in whenever they feel mm-hmm. like it's supposed to be a romantic, nostalgic yeah. moment for this for this first meetup. <laughs> but this it's this is not a good enough scene to be mis- to be nostalgic about. No, not really. So anyway, ladies in red dresses dancing and stomping, slow motion. I mean, it's it's pretty. Uh, who is fuck? <laughs> so, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So after, you know, we get the the eyes across the room thing, you know, Ethan spots Naya, Naya spots Ethan. They both fancy each other. They're both very good looking people. Um, nice. <laughs> Naya then sort of disappears from Ethan's view when a woman's dress whips across the screen. And then we see Naya run upstairs during the uh, loud percussive stomping of the dance so it sort of sort of hides her moving she slips on some gloves and sneaks into this room to get something so uh she breaks out this little compact i will say i like the little device that's in her compact i don't know what the hell it does (laughs) some type of (laughs) electric electric lock detector or something i don't know something anyway so then she does this little move where she like makes her way over to the other side of the tub and it is gets it gets things tingling. That's all I'm gonna oh, say. Dear. She's, <laughs> you're gonna have to deal with that on this one. <laughs> you're gonna have to deal with me a little bit on this because swoon worthy. Anyway, so then she's got this silly little lipstick lockpick thing, and then some other gadget that she that helps her open the secret compartment to these three containers just all kinds of weird little tech that seem incredibly over-specialized. <laughs> like they were specially designed for one thing. <laughs> right. So anyway, as she's doing all this, Tom sort of sneaks up behind her, makes her pre- makes his presence known. And uh, he's like, oh, you think you're the only one who can pick a lock? And her reply, of course, is, oh, you're not just a pretty face after all. So it's kind of a nice little reversal of, of typical lines that you would hear sure. in, in, in a moment like this. So as they're sort of doing their thing, they're interrupted by the owner of the place walking in and they sort of hide in the tub. So I now, now I know that you disagree with me on this, <laughs> but I kind of love this scene because it gives Mission Impossible a little bit of sexiness because because we've got initially Tom is on top of her in the tub mm-hmm. and and they're lying there and they're face to face and it's very sexy, sexy. And I kind of like the sexual tension because I'm a Bond guy. And so when I see these moments, mm-hmm. I'm like, this needs to be in a spy movie. So anyway. It, it, you know, it's definitely a good establishment between of the of the chemistry between the two of them. And it's right. it's genuinely there. Yeah. So it didn't come it didn't come out as being kind of you know stiff or 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 forced. Right. But you know, my thing is is that. 
you can't have Ethan being sexy, sexy, flitty, flitty with girls after he gets married. When True. they marry the character, he can't do it. If they had not had him marry his wife, then he could have done this in every movie. And I wouldn't care. I think it would be fine and appropriate. Yeah. And see, I think my problem is, is actually, I don't think he should have ever gotten married as a, as a character. And I think that I know I'm sort of treading off the, off the beaten path here, but in three, I feel like that was like a story point that doesn't even necessarily work out all that well. And then they become married to it for the rest of the series. Yeah. But I think, I think they put it there for a reason. They were trying to make him not be James Bond. Right. Exactly. And the one They're, thing you can do to make him not be James Bond is not have him be a ladies man. Right. Have so him be monogamous and just be, right. a, just be in love with his wife. And right. And, and dare I say, it makes the writers have to be a little better at their job to not have all the information <laughs> come out of whoever James Bond is screwing. That's true. I mean, you actually have to, so, you know. I've been conditioned, man. (laughs) I I can tell. (laughs) So anyway, so they're hiding in the tub. Uh, He's on top of her. And then we get this sexy little line from Naya where she goes, you mind if I'm on top? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah. <laughs> he's like, go for it. <laughs> sure. So, so then the owner of the place walks back out with a bottle of something and, and leaves. And so they they flip over and she gets on top of him. There's that, that shot, that over the shoulder shot. It's a lovely shot. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble. I'm gonna get in trouble for this episode. I can tell already. Um, so anyway, <laughs> Ethan directs her to the right compartment. And after sort of kneeing him in the stomach, which I really enjoyed, um, yes. opens opens the compartment with the necklace. Like, because I love how Ethan kind of does this, oh, and sort of almost laughs. It's like painful, but he's also laughing about it as he gets kneed yes. in the chest. So as they're chit-chatting, um, she goes to put the necklace case back after she sort of put the necklace in her bra or whatever. And when she puts the case back, it sets off the alarm. And then we get woo double zoom cameras. It's like <laughs> who is <laughs> the double zoom cameras and the alarm. Just it's just such woo filmmaking. Anyway, so guards come in. Turns out um, then suddenly that we find out Ethan is quote Mister Keys, the alleged security engineer for the owner of this place. The owner guy comes in and um, Ethan sort of makes it sound like they were testing the efficiency of the system. Uh, Ethan basically forces her to give back the necklace, uh, saying that, you know, she was his assistant in testing mm-hmm. the in testing the alarm system and that they should really adjust uh, the the kilograms and and the timing and the alarm should have gone off much quicker and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, <laughs> so. <laughs> So she's super irritated that he wouldn't let her keep the necklace as they slipped out. Um, but Ethan explains that he wanted to see how good she was and that he wants to work with her. Um, and, then, and then he really pisses her off by revealing that he actually set off the alarm with a little keychain thing. <laughs> and that really pisses her off. And she takes off in her, in her little flashy Audi TT, leaving Ethan in a cloud of dust, stunned in slow mm-hmm. motion. In slow motion. <laughs> you remember when the Audi TT was the in-car? The, 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 remember? I was about to say that. I remember the exact time because I, I remember where I was working and this guy that was probably three positions over me 
at the place that I worked at the time, who was, you know, making, obviously making a lot more money than me. He had just bought an Audi TT mm -hmm. and I was so starstruck by it. <laughs> oh, that with all this little, you know, round bezels and it, yes. it looked, it looked like, and, and the brushed, probably... the brushed steel and absolutely yeah. the inside of that car looked like what a mini Cooper wished it could have been. Hey, I love my mini Cooper. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did, but what did. you didn't love it. 100%. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Had a lot of glitches in it. <laughs> We don't need to do an episode about that, but I could tell you all no. the weird, all the weird shit that happened with that car. But anyway, <laughs> maybe, maybe when we get to the Austin Power movies and it's more movie relevant. <laughs> yes, yes. Then I can talk about my weird <laughs> stories. The reason I bring it up was because you know you talk about how the music dated the movie. Yes, that car dates this movie. Oh, very much so. Audi has become a huge movie partner with putting yes. like a, for the Marvel movies and things of that nature. But you never see an Audi TT, even though they still make it, right? right? You got Audi sedans, you got Audi sport utility vehicles, you got Tony Stark driving an R8 everywhere he goes. And, you know, it's funny to think of 20 years that when you watch Avengers or something, yeah. you're going to be Those like, are going to seem really dated. Remember when an R8 was like the thing car? That'll, that'll be my <laughs> my grandkid doing uh, this version of this podcast then. <laughs> right. Talking about how dated those cars are. Exactly. Uh, so cut to the next day and we see uh, Naya driving in the mountains. Always the mountains. They're always, always driving the in the mountains. mountains. Um, and we get basically Mission Impossible's take on the GoldenEye Bond versus Onatop driving sequence. <laughs> like it is pretty damn similar. All we needed was uh, somebody sitting next to Ethan <laughs> in the car mm -hmm. that he could make weird quips to. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so, so, so we get the side-by-side -side driving. Of course they can talk to each other driving side-by-side -side at 70 miles an hour going around a windy mountain. But anyway, I digress. Um, so, <laughs> so Ethan is offering to make all of Naya's criminal troubles go away if she helps him. Um, and with that, she realizes that he's a spy at this point and says, well, you got to catch me. So this chase ensues. And uh, I do like that Tom Cruise has a really good startled face when she mm -hmm. bumps into him with the car. I truly bought that he didn't expect that to happen to him. Right. <laughs> and then I also well. find it really funny that to his character, he apologizes to all these cars that they're passing yeah. during during all of this. Like he's still like Ethan Hunt, the good natured. I'm yes, trying exactly. Not to <laughs> but yeah, uh, this this uh, this movie. Anyway, so then we see Nia looking in a rear view, and in the time being, she fails to see an oncoming car, which sets into motion this chaos where somehow the two cars are spinning together side by side, out of control. In slow motion, hair, lots of lusty glances. It's, it's, what is it? Who is fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so her car comes to a halt and it's teetering on the edge of the mountain and Naya is hanging out of the car off the ledge and she's hanging on by a single hand onto the car door handle. And Ethan pulls her back up. And of course, now she's straddled on top of him and she's catching her breath. And, and, they're, and they're all just, you know, like trying to uh, compose themselves after this dangerous thing. So, of course, that gets them in the mood. So, sex. Ugh. So sex. That whole, that whole <laughs> car chase. 
that whole car chase was terrible. It really was. It was it was pretty I awful. Mean, aside from the fact that that Porsche would have just been able to dust that TT in any kind of driving. Right. Just aside from that, the whole the the whole trope that isn't a trope, but the whole setup of the car spinning out of control. And then just being far enough over the edge that she could fall to her death, but not far enough over the edge that Tom Cruise adding his weight to her car doesn't send it tumbling over the edge. Right, exactly. Then then we're just going to look at each other lovingly, even though I just nearly died 10 seconds ago. And I nearly, and I basically totaled your car. I mean, that's the other thing. Tom Cruise, or Ethan Hunt, I should say, for all his apologizing to the cars going past him, he fucking t-bones her car at one point yes. send her sending her spinning it's yes. like so, so are you a dick or are you polite which one is well, it <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like this was like their one real attempt to try and make him be that every man ethan hunt that i like so much about the series okay where he he's in control but sometimes events get out of his control right okay like i see he, that yeah he wasn't trying to damage the car but he was trying to get her to nudge her away from what she was doing and it went horribly wrong right which is something i expect in these films he always has an indiana jones moment where he's in over his head very much and something doesn't go the way he plans and that's kind of what this felt like i don't think there's any other moments like it in the entire film yeah and it's not it's not completely obvious though either it's not right you know what i mean whereas like you think about like the scene in maybe ghost protocol where the gloves stop working when he's when he's on the face of the building in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Like that's obvious, right. you know. Whereas this, the way that it's cut and the way that it's shot isn't completely convincing that that's what's happening. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. The only other contemporary thing in this movie is the uh, total ripoff of the shaft drop thing, where yeah. you yeah. you get the you get the tension of the time frame with the veins folding in, but. He knew that could happen. It wasn't something that was unexpected. Like in the first movie, when you had some weird things going on that he didn't anticipate. Right. Yeah. Just X factors that come in. Right. But anyway, sex. But anyway, sex. (laughs) (laughs) So so then we cut into this kind of romantic scene, I guess, where they're in bed together and he sort of sits up and we get this barrage of funny, what am I doing here? Looks from Ethan. Where he's just like, how did I get here? I can't believe I just slept with her type looks. <laughs> so, and I'm thinking, have you looked at her? <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> so, so she asks if so she asks if he needs a spy to catch a spy, yada yada. And then they go back to snogging. Anyway, it's really not the the best uh, scene. I think the only reason why it's important is because. This creates the jealousy that happens later in Ethan. Well, yeah, they're definitely they're definitely trying to establish that he's conflicted, not only because he's forcing her to have to do this, but that he's got some romantic, romantic involvement feelings yeah. for her. And that's kind of judging his thing. So it's a right. duty over, you know, personal need. Right. Type and of conflict. It just feels very it's the least amount of effort they could exert to establish that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so. So anyway, we cut to nighttime in this uh, area of Seville where there's some kind of religious festival going on. Burning Jesus! Yeah, exactly. And this is where we get our first glimpse of uh, Swanbeck, 
aka Anthony Hopkins, uh, sort of looking out from above. And then we see Ethan making his way through the crowd. And then he's allowed entrance into the room where Swanbeck is. Swanbeck apologizes for barging in on Ethan's vacation. And Ethan apologizes for not telling him where he was. And then we get that cool thing where Swanbeck sort of echoes the same thing that Ethan said when he was on the uh, at the top of the mountain, where he was like, well, if you told me where you were, you wouldn't be on mm-hmm. vacation. And then that's when we get Ethan now saying the I'm sorry and you're sorry line, showing that he did, in fact, know the doctor from the uh, pre-title. And that's when Swanbeck is sort of like, why did you phrase it like that? And Ethan's sort of like, well, what do you mean? And then he shows him the video from Dr. Nikorvich with the dialogue that we heard at the beginning of the movie. So after watching, um, Ethan starts strategizing how to move Nekovich, but is then told that he is dead after dying in a plane crash. Um, And from there, we come to find out that uh, Swanbeck used Sean Ambrose to double as Ethan since he couldn't find Ethan right away on his vacation. We then find out also that the original captain of the flight that Nekovich was on had been killed prior to the plane flight and stuffed into the cargo of another plane. So at that point, Ethan immediately suspects that Ambrose has defected and he was the one that designed the plane crash to look like an accident. And Swanbeck is sort of like, so so that's what you think. And he's like, oh, you know, like they sort of question where Ambrose's uh, alliances stand for a second. And then, and then they sort of move on from that. It's just very obvious that that's probably what happened. So Ethan states um, that he'll have to figure out how Ambrose plans to make money off Chimera. And again, they don't know what this is yet. Right. And Swanbeck then says, well, that's where Miss Hall comes in. And from here, this is when we actually find out that Ambrose and Naya were in a relationship that she walked away from and he still wants her back. So Swanbeck basically states that this will be the easiest way to find Ambrose and extract the information about what Chimera is and what his plans are. Basically by her magically rekindling a relationship she wants no part of. Yuck. There's your there's your James Bond icky moment right there. Uh, maybe I don't want James Bond in this movie. Because <laughs> that's that's the part of James Bond I don't want in this movie is the mm-hmm. is the icky, the icky bits like this. Yes. So Ethan's noticeably irritated because he thought that he was recruiting Naya for her thief skills, not her other skills. Um Swanbeck justifies it by saying uh, she won't be doing anything she hasn't already willingly done. Oh, see, uh, now I got to tell you, I, the creepiness of Anthony yeah. Hopkins part makes me wonder if that's why Ian McKellen didn't take the role. Seriously, he is, you know, for for the head. I know that I find it really bizarre that in the movies of Mission Impossible, they make the head of IMF villainous in these first two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember if, if it's a villain in three, but you know, he goes back to being a good guy in, in four or at least five and five and six. He's a good guy. I think the intent is always like, even, even when Zerny did it in the first one, mm-hmm. he's not a bad guy. He's just not super likable. Right. He He's a company guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes what the company requires is doesn't awful. necessarily gel with what Ethan needs. Right. And so, I feel it's the same here with Anthony Hopkins with Swanbeck. It's just that Swanbeck is just gross. It's, it's so far more sinister. 
Like it's, it's so, and it's so misogynistic in a in a franchise that really isn't trying to play up the misogyny of of the spy genre. Right. I mean, they really they really go the opposite direction, especially moving after this movie. I mean, especially mm-hmm. with the development of Ilsa and Ethan being married and everything else. Like, oh yeah, it sticks out like a sore thumb. This area in here. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Um. So anyway, so Ethan then argues that. She's not trained for this type of work, but Swanbeck then retorts with yet another creepy line and says, women come equipped with the ability to go to bed with a man and lie to them, mm-hmm. which is just, I know it's awful. Wow. I mean, it's awful. Yeah. So, but that is when we get the rather memorable exchange from this movie. I don't think I can get her to do it. You mean it'll be difficult? Very. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. <laughs> I mean, that yes. that is such a great line. I just that, that it sticks with me the whole time. It's so great. It really is. <laughs> it's the whole reason he was there was to deliver that one line. It's, oh yeah, and he does it so well. <laughs> so from here, Ethan's all kinds of mad as implied by slow motion walking past the bonfire at the festival. <laughs> oh, woo. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, woo. Oh, woo. You never miss a chance for the slow-mo. Um, <laughs> so Ethan gets back to his room with Naya and shows her the pictures of the plane wreck and lets her know that Sean Ambrose is most likely responsible. And it then clicks in her head that she's going to be asked to sleep with Ambrose again to get the information that Ethan wants. And she ain't stupid. She's not stupid at all. So they obviously argue. I think it's weird that during the argument, there's a moment where Ethan says something like, would you be less mad if I told you I didn't yep. want this to, to have to happen? And she says, yes. And she's like, we'll get less angry. He says, we'll get less angry or something like that. And while, uh, I mean, I understand his method of, of arguing. The fact remains, he's still asking her to do it. So it right. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's mad about it. He's still asking her to do it. Yeah, but that's just the writer's ability to help him assuage his guilt and make the viewer right. assuage their guilt so they can move on with the creepy premise. Right. So finally, Naya just chooses to help, mentioning that in order to make their reuniting believable, Ambrose would have to believe that she was in some kind of serious trouble and that she had no way of getting it out, getting out of it on her own. So then from here, we get this little quick montage of Naya being quote unquote booked and hearing Ethan describe to Naya what the transponder chip does. Oh yeah. So they, they inject this transponder this trackable transponder into her foot pretty much the most painful place that you can inject something into but one of the last places someone would look for it so it makes True. sense it makes sense but, but then, god that must have hurt like a motherfucker <laughs> but but ben explain how this transponder works oh god do i have to <laughs> so so basically, it can only be tracked by a single computer, one computer, <laughs> despite the fact that it's being transmitted to a satellite. <laughs> and that is the worst computer I've ever seen portrayed in any movie. 
it's still booting up. Oh it my takes, god! It'll take a little time to get it done. They've had a, they had a number of moments in this movie where where they're waiting on technology, which is such right. a weird. It's such a weird thing that that, that that's you have like to a, wonder that's, if that was an undercurrent that Wu wanted in there for some reason. Absolutely, he's got to have been. That had to have been something that was specifically either that or or they were trying to use that as they were like, what vehicle can we create to build tension? Right. What's what's something that we can do to make things seem more and more tense? Oh well, they have to wait for this thing that they have no control over. Maybe that's right. what it was, but it's they use it over. They crutch on it. Over and over again. Exactly. Half of Luther's lines in this movie are him apologizing for how poor his computer system is. When all you really wanted was Ving Rhames to say, I told you we shouldn't have done it this way, Ethan. I told you it wouldn't work. And here we are waiting for this to happen and you'll get mad at me. That's the line I wanted because that's who Luther is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, uh, anyway. So she gets the transponder chip injected into her foot. Uh, and then we just hear him describe that upon her arrest, they sent out news bulletins to every law enforcement agency, which Ambrose would likely see since he's paying right. attention to all this stuff since the, the plane went down and then take advantage of, of the fact that she's in jail by freeing her. So then we cut to Australia where suddenly Naya's on a speedboat being driven to where Ambrose is. And this it, that's is, this is a very Bond moment, by the way. It is. It is. It's very chic. She's on a very nice speedboat. She's got yeah. a little, little scarf, scarf blowing in the wind. Scarf blowing in the wind. She's, you know, beautiful as she is. And then we, this is all being intercut with a helicopter in the uh, desert slash bush area of Australia. Uh, we get some Mission Impossible theme music finally, and a quick couple shots of computer files. This part is so generic. This this quick montage of computer files showing the profiles of Billy Baird and Luther. We have the meat stickle. Um, it's like, <laughs> like it is so. Did they just pick this stuff from like a stock photo? Like the 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 computer interface on this montage is horrible. I hate it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but it's there to quickly tell the viewer that his team is coming in and this is his team. So again, very like tertiary, not it's just sort of these side characters and they're just here for a couple of yucks, which is one of my, aside from the misogyny, my least favorite part of this movie, I think. Copy <laughs> so, that. So, so Billy lands the helicopter and the two jump out and meet, meet Ethan, who's waiting for them. And Billy introduces himself basically as Captain Australia. He's like, all right, good night, mate. He's all here. Oh, I'm here to help you. Ha, ha, ha. And then he just sort of walks off and it's just like, what the fuck did I just see? <laughs> Who is this person? Just, anyway, bad stereotypes of Australians. Uh, and then Luther is basically the B.A. Baracus to Billy's howling mad Murdoch. Right. He comes up. He's like, oh, I hate all this. This is, this is bullshit. And he lands in a pile of shit. He literally lands his fancy shoes in a pile of shit. And it's like, I'm just waiting for Ethan to go. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Then we're back to Naya showing up at the dock where Ambrose's place is. And this is a weird woo-as-fuck moment as well. 
we get this weird tension moment that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So Ethan and the boys are trying to establish a link to the satellite so they mm-hmm. can have eyes on Naya when she meets Ambrose. I'm guessing, assuming to verify that it is in fact Ambrose. I don't That's know. That's kind of what I got from it. So, but they create this tension over getting this to happen. And we get slow-mo and zooms and all the wooisms. And what is going to happen when they finally are reunited, you know, is, is and in the scene, the Billy Barrett character is just the fucking worst. He's like, I know, right? He, he suddenly cares. He doesn't know these people from anything yet. He just he he's he just on, showed up 10 minutes ago. Seriously, he's been on the ground for 10 minutes. How does he give a flying fuck? And he's like the most concerned person in the fucking room at this point. Right. Like, just so overacted. Anyway, and then of course everything is fine, and Ethan can be jealous in peace while Naya kisses him. <laughs> but but it's just it was just a weird place to like have this slow walk up of Naya walking up the dock to to meet Ambrose, and like it's all in slow motion. And then he grabs the the uh, scarf from blowing away ninja style, ninja style. But but at, at the same time that you're wondering if it's if he's going to be aggressive with her or be violent or something. And then he just shows her love or whatever. And it's just, it, it, yeah, it, it so doesn't barely at all work for me. It's so Hong Kong cinema. It is. Those types of movies are so much more symbolic than what we typically put into an American film. Right. Well, the problem is too, is taking this moment of Hong Kong cinema and inserting it right here doesn't work in context. It absolutely doesn't. It works in a Hong Kong movie because everything else makes sense around it. Right. But in this movie, it's like, what? (laughs) So Sean takes Naya to his room uh, so he can make sure he sees her naked again um, (laughs) or something. He's got a dress for her to try on. And, and, you know, conveniently, it's assumed that she'll be sleeping in his room. And the scene is icky for all the reasons that it is. I mean, you've got you've got her trying on this dress that he got her and like she takes off her clothes and you get this ultra disgusting look of like of of lust out of Ambrose while she's taking off her clothes. And it's just uh, nobody needs to see that. Nobody mm-hmm. needs to see that. I don't want to see that. I felt like I just I, I, I felt like I was watching somebody watching porn on their computer that didn't want to be seen. That's mm-hmm. what I felt like. <laughs> the good news is you never have to see it again if you don't want to. That's that's very true. <laughs> I know I'm not gonna. So then we get this little line that I actually kind of like where Ethan says, We just rolled up a snowball and tossed it into hell. <laughs> You're shaking your head, you don't like that too much. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a carryover from this whole scene, this whole block, yeah, yeah. where it just literally this whole thing feels like he pulled it out of Wu pulled it out of another one of his movies and stuck it in here. Yeah. So this type of line works in that kind of a movie, but it doesn't, doesn't mess- work here, right? Um, so basically, uh, so after Naya basically has no choice but to have sex with Ambrose to stay in character. Um, we see Ethan staring out into the Australian bushlands, and then we hear the words from uh, Dr. Nikorvich's video again, um, and we see the boys trying to figure out what he's getting at, as if it's some fucking mystery. I mean, 
The guy is a molecular biologist. Working for a chem or a, a, a pharmaceutical company. Right, exactly. Well, he's working for a biotech company. What the fuck do you think it is? <laughs> so anyway. It's a book. No, it's a list. No, it's a drive. No, all Wait. things they could have considered. <laughs> Wait, you mean it's a virus? <laughs> <laughs> On a computer disk. No, it's a virus virus. <laughs> On a list? It's like a viral a viral list that people do on Facebook? No, it's a virus. Like in your arm will kill you. So, so we cut back to Ambrose and his right-hand dude Hugh Stamp is they're they're sitting in this fancy little room and Ambrose is wearing a robe? Yeah, it, <laughs> like, oh. Ambrose is still wearing a robe like he hasn't even cleaned up from <laughs> what just transpired mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's holding, and what makes him even more weird is he's holding this giant fucking magnifying glass as if, and he's looking at this printed out image of money, uh, these piles of money that are sitting on top of this newspaper, which is apparently a bid for the chimera virus. Hugh at this point then expresses his concern about Naya and if they can trust her. And Ambrose basically states he doesn't care because he's more or less obsessed with having sex with her. Like more or less. At least cool. he's honest. I yeah, guess. I, I suppose so. And, and just the questioning by, by Hugh totally pisses him off and he stops everything. And he looks at the guy's fingernail, which looks like a, like a cocaine fingernail or something. Yeah, I don't like this scene. I really don't like this scene. (laughs) Not my thing. No, 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 no. (laughs) Yeah, and then he takes the the cigar chopper and chops off the tip of the Mm -hmm. guy's finger. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah, it's icky. It's icky. I got to tell you something. I don't care. I've always hated this conceit that you're so loyal. It's the it's the odd job principle, right? Yeah. You're so loyal to your boss that even though you're a badass, you will allow something like that to happen to your person. Yeah. And not do anything to that guy. Because I'm telling you right now, I'm pretty sure Hugh was a bigger badass than Ambrose was. If that asshole came to me trying to chop off the tip of my finger, I would have beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Up until he gets killed, Hugh's a total badass. And so you're right. It's the odd job principle. I mean, if you wanted to have that Band-Aid there for the final, because that's the whole reason that thing is there. Yeah, that's the only reason why it exists. Which, And I also find, I I still, I just can't get over the fact that all of his nails are perfect except for his pinky. Right. Like, And it's not, (laughs) if I'm being truthful, it's not long enough to actually be used for cocaine anyway no 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 it's just long enough to look gross it's uh it's just uh you could have had a hit his hand going out of the plane when they jumped off yeah so many ways to denote how his hand got damaged so you could use it as a signifier later right i hate this thing you know i in like yakuza movies i get it in mob movies i get it there's a dynamic there that's different than the dynamic these two people have. Right, it's have. a family and, dynamic. Exactly. You're, yeah. It's honor. It's it's you know, mm-hmm. you know you you're showing your fealty to whatever. And this one it just felt very. Uh, it's just icky. I don't like it. Yeah. So anyway, right after his fingers chopped, the tip of his fingers chopped, it cuts right into the start of a horse race, and that also kind of gets us into the second act of this movie. Yes. Yes, it does. 
So we're uh, we're on the grounds of a racetrack. Um, you can tell it's a horse racetrack because it looks like one. Um, <laughs> Sean and Naya are at the track sitting together and they're cheering on the horses. Um, Naya's either acting or is completely oblivious to how horse racing works. It feels more like she's kind of putting on the dumb blonde routine yeah, for this to yeah. make Ambrose feel better. But uh, her horse, Thief of the Night, mm-hmm. actually ends up winning, and she gets very excited. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> uh, behind the two of them, Hugh is sort of looking on in, in Captain Security mode. We see the bandage on his finger, which uh, becomes something later, as I just mentioned earlier. Sean decides to get up uh, and go get them some drinks. And once he's gone, Naya goes into business mode. The face yeah. just goes boom. Drops, yeah, drops the happy act. Right. Um, she's kind of scanning what's going on outside on the field with her glasses. When Billy shows up dressed as an usher is just the most ridiculous. I mean, this is his whole point is to do this <laughs> in this movie. Uh, shows up with an earpiece for her that's hidden inside a racing guide. He gives her some sort of cheeky winky winky comment. Yeah. And, then and, and some sort of like race advice side. or something, some horse yeah, advice or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Don't bet on horses. The best thing in the world. You know, whatever. Uh, anyway, so she gets the earpiece and she puts it in her head and, and Ethan immediately starts talking to her. Uh, she starts telling Ethan uh, how many men are about and how Hugh is a creep, which he is. Um, <laughs> she then uh, asks about the photos on the money's uh, the photos of the money on the newspaper. And then Ethan's like, you know, it's probably got to be some kind of like surreptitious bidding process that's going on for, for Camara. Right. Um, so <laughs> Billy starts looking around through one of my least favorite tropes in spy movies, really fancy binoculars. <laughs> yes. With all sorts of tech built into them. Uh, I'm like, what are these macro binoculars from Tatooine? <laughs> this is star Wars. Come on. <laughs> but Billy's looking through his fancy binoculars. He sees that instead of getting the drinks that Sean's actually meeting someone in the bar, mm-hmm. uh, Ethan then goes to the bar with his fancy binoculars and looks at him and then starts taking pictures through the binoculars, which he sends to Luther, who is of course the man in the van. Nearby, As probably usual. down by the river. <laughs> I am going to say he probably does have a lot of meat in that van, though. That's right. <laughs> he's he's uh, well fed. He's definitely well fed. So we see the screen interface on Luther's computer, and it's it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it's... He's, he's able to identify Biosite CEO, John McCloy, who apparently got that title after a hostile takeover. So we don't like him already because he's big business and he's an asshole. Right. Um, <laughs> he was also Nikorovich's boss directly. As we're watching them chatting through the binoculars, Ambrose shows them a video of Chimera infecting one of Nikorovich's colleagues. And McCloy is pissed because now he knows he's being blackmailed. Right. Uh, Ethan quickly orchestrates uh, having Naya pit pocket pick pocket Ambrose for the memory stick that has the video and memory stick. Ah, the good old days. Ah, yes. (laughs) Hey, I still use memory sticks. (laughs) Well, not memory sticks, the the cards, the little memory cards. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But (laughs) did you love love that high fidelity, what was that, a two-inch by three-inch screen that was on the back of this camera? (laughs) That detail you got out of those pixels was amazing. It's incredible (laughs) for 2000. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, he asked Naya to pick pocket the memory stick that has a video and then wants to meet her in the crowd to copy the file and send it to Luther. Right. Uh, in order to get away 
from Ambrose, who's returned with their drinks. Naya's like, I'm going to go place a bet on another horse. And as she's starting to go off, Ambrose is like, no, wait. And you start to think, uh-oh, she's busted. But he's like, put some money down for me. Right. Because you're cute, and I want to have sex with you later. <laughs> but, but really, he's thinking... I know you're up to something, but I'm going to play along anyway. That's right. right. I do. So, I did. I did really like the slick move uh, where she's got the, the memory card under her arm. And as she's turning, she like drops it and then it and then catches it in her hand and then yes. slips it down the back of her pants, like really quickly to sort of hide it. It's like it plays well to her character as a thief and being kind of slick and right. lots of, you know, uh, sleight of hand type stuff going on can i just say though that if she left that in her pants for any length of time it was pretty sweaty and gross i'm, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here <laughs> but you know whatever um god so anyway for, yeah god forbid she had beans that day <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh so anyway so yeah so she she gets the she pickpockets the device or the the memory stick from him. She goes mm-hmm. off to go place the bet. We get the cutesy wootsy place one for me. Um, <laughs> she heads off and uh, makes her way to the betting table area. When Hugh tries to follow her, just to make sure that she's you know not up to no good. Right. Um, we do get a genuinely funny moment where Billy uh, ends up slowing him up in the doorway by basically slamming it on him. <laughs> yeah, which I loved. That was actually a part I really enjoyed, mainly yeah. because Billy is so annoying to begin with. That, yeah, like I actually kind of liked watching Hugh rough him up. <laughs> yeah, well, and it was nice to see him serve a purpose other than just being exposition, more or less, in the movie. Yeah. So he holds him up. There's a little bit of an argument, a scuffle. Hugh threatens to kick his ass. He apologizes and move on. But he accomplishes what Billy accomplishes what he's trying to do, which is to get Naya out of the way. So she ends up getting in line to the betting table. And uh, Ethan manages to ninja his way through all of these people to get up <laughs> behind Naya in the line for betting. You know, it's funny that she just happened to be the last one in line. He didn't have to cut in front of people or anything. Yeah, that's amazing how that worked. You know, it's <laughs> she's right up to right up to the front of the line. Just right, oh. right. You know, nobody nobody said anything because do you know? Have you ever noticed how much that Ethan Hunt looks like Tom Cruise? I think that's how he's able to get around with some of this kind of stuff. <laughs> People are just like, "Oh, it's Tom Cruise. We got to let him go forward." He's Tom Jesus, Cruise. Let him out of the way. Let him go. <laughs> let Mr. Cruise go. Go, Mr. Cruise. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Ethan gets up behind Naya uh, in the betting line, and they have this kind of little... This silly little argument of, of don't turn around. And then she turns around, and he's like, you turned around. It's like, yes. yeah, so? <laughs> yeah. At this point in the movie, we've already established that Naya is doing her own thing for her own reasons. So the whole meh, 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 yeah. it's just kind of Ethan sounding like an asshole. There's yeah. no real point to it. Yeah. But they have their little tete-a-tete. It's funny, Um, though, when Luther shows up. (laughs) Well, that's, yeah. So, because technology is so advanced in the year 2000, (laughs) Ethan couldn't possibly have his own camera on him to look at the data stick. He has to get Luther Luther to run another digital camera from the van out to to him. And he made his way through. Apparently, everyone recognizes Ving Rhames as well, and they let him charge right through to the front line as well. (laughs) <laughs> but then he literally hands off the camera, runs back to the van, and you get probably the best acting moment in this entire movie where Luther is out of breath while he's trying to help upload the data from the camera. Yeah, that is a good moment, actually. It, it's very believable. <laughs> very believable. Uh, so anyway, 
Luther gets Ethan the camera. They start doing the transfer, and we get to see the video of the doctor who died bloody out of his eyeballs after Ugh. 20 hours of exposure and an additional 14 hours of suffering. <laughs> yeah, that's a nasty moment. <laughs> I know. It's pretty terrible. So now we finally figure out exactly what Chimera is. We know that it's bad. We got to figure out now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Virus bad. Not good. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, definitely not good. Um <laughs> And so right after seeing this, uh, Billy hollers at him, let him know that Hugh is coming up behind them. So, oh, Hugh. <laughs> oh, Hugh. You sound, you're from Australia, but you sound like you're from South Africa. I'm not really sure where you're coming from, buddy. But at this point, Ethan talks about wanting Naya to get out. Uh, he feels that she's too exposed and that she needs to leave. And that if she doesn't leave, he's going to come and get her. Right. He's hurrying to give her back the memory card now that he's downloaded all of the information. And she drops it. Uh, and when she gets back up, Hugh's there, and Ethan has vanished in air, into the air, Ugh. like a dove flying in slow motion. Who is fuck? <laughs> yes, I had yes, to do it. Was. I had to you do had it. To do, you had to do it. Uh, we haven't had one this act yet. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it perfectly well placed. Uh, the movement of tension in this particular scene actually works pretty good, I think. Um, yeah. They, they, there's so much contrived tension in this movie that when you get a nugget that actually works well, right? it's sort of like, oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, well, that was cool, I guess. All right, moving yeah, on. Yeah, but when you look at it from a dynamic, there, there was good interaction between the two of them. They were building up the tension. They were doing it properly. Rather Correct. than trying to phone the tension in with fake things that shouldn't really happen in an organization like right, or like uh, a computer loading up or something, I don't know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know, it's funny in this day and age, you really can't make that joke anymore, or you can't use that. Computers are so fast. Yeah, that's such a two thousands thing of people waiting for anything to happen on a computer. Right. Well, and it's funny when you think about like tech problems in future Mission Impossible movies, you think about like, I think about Ghost Protocol, about the gloves not working, like all the tech that stops working in more current Mission Impossible movies, they all have to do with physical action. Right. Because, because things like a computer loading or or something downloading, you can't even use it now. Yep. Well, I just remember for the longest time, the loading status bar was the anti-bomb timer. Right. right. You know, it had to get longer, whereas bomb timers got shorter. shorter but yeah. it replaced that whole thing is you just see a bar on a screen in a computer graphic. 38%, 42%, <laughs> And I'm, you still get that in movies now. I mean, you honestly, you do. Yeah. You know, but there has to be this whole explanation that it's a gigantic file and it's overrunning our systems or the computer cores down or, you know. Jordy's visor wasn't working properly. You couldn't see the <laughs> correct nanoparticles. I mean, there's always a deeper explanation, but in 2000, you could just say it was a shitty fucking computer and it, it was yeah. not formatted properly for what it's supposed to be doing, Ethan. And that's right. Know, this was formatted I, for Mac. What are you doing? I, <laughs> this is a I Windows you, facility. This was a bad idea. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So Naya gets back to Ambrose. Uh, she thinks she's pulled off the, the whole bait and switch and mm -hmm. gives him a hug, gets the thing back into his pocket, but she inadvertently puts it in the wrong pocket. 
And he immediately which, notices. He, which he is immediately notices. And before I say anything else, what was that envelope made out of? Because with all the folding, bending, dropping, kicking, all being the ruffling, sweaty ass. <laughs> it was pristine. When it went back in his pocket. <laughs> no dirt, no sweat. No dirt, no nothing. It was like a bulletproof envelope. <laughs> but anyway, so she puts it back in the round pocket. He notices. And you know, so he's pretty much confirms that, you know, she's playing on the other side, which he knew already. It's not a huge surprise there. But yeah, he uh, kind of didn't care anyway. He was just in it for the yeah, the for no- the, he was in it for the nookie to use a limp biscuit reference. No, no, no. He was in it for <laughs> the nookie. The nookie. What? So you could get that cookie. <laughs> Thank you. Oh man, I can't believe you made me do that. You started it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, you should know better than to do that with me if you don't want that to happen. Uh, anyway, so we cut back to Ambrose's uh, apartment or wherever he's living, where he's watching a corporate video of McCloy on the BioSite website. He says something about not missing his shot. A Hamilton fan, perhaps? <laughs> we don't know. Like that's such a weird line. Like I, it's so. Just a non sequitur. Like I don't quite understand what that estab- like what that does, other than establishes that he's determined to do what he's determined to do. It doesn't really give you anything else, or at least I couldn't gain anything from it. I'm wondering if it, if it has to do with the fact that his actual plot was to take over the company. I suppose so. Yeah, because I mean, maybe we find out it. at the end he changes his tune from just cash to right to I am, really raking it. I am altering the deal. Pray I don't yeah, alter I it don't any alter further. It. <laughs> exactly. It still keeps getting worse all the time. <laughs> but uh, we got that. Uh, we then cut to seeing McCloy leaving work, which I don't know why it seems so weird to me that this CEO of a company is just walking down the steps to his building to get in the car. I feel like CEOs all have their own little parking space or something. Right. Somewhere. It's probably be some, you know, it wouldn't be right out the front door. Right. But I mean, you know, maybe Wu wanted a stair shot. I don't know. But uh, he, he he heads out, gets it to his limo, and it's not his usual driver taking him. We also see that Ambrose's men are following him, which kind of confused me on my first viewing. Until I realized this was a mousetrap. I was I was like, what? Right. Why? Why were Ambrose? What? Ha- why didn't Ambrose's men report back that he disappeared? Well, they do eventually. Ambrose. Do they? Th- yeah. Did I miss that part? Yeah. Like. Ambrose knows that something is up. So he sends one of his guys to follow McCloy because he knows that at this point, the IMF, like Ethan and the gang are going to try and nab McCloy. And so they want to see if that's already happened. I think. Okay. I don't know. I, see, it's a little I, messy. I, I never really got that throughput. And I, it could have been probably explained out in the third act. I was so over this movie, this first the two <laughs> times I watched it. I yeah. probably didn't pick up a whole lot from it. But anyway, <laughs> he's in the limo. They're being followed. Um, you get this little thing about CEO dies. Yeah, the he, there's like a, fa- a newspaper that's been that's been printed into the future. <laughs> like a saying that the CEO died of some unknown virus or whatever. Right. Which is clearly there to put it in his mind that he had the virus when they woke him up. But right. Uh, they end up gassing him, so he gets knocked out. And it's, I hate gas scenes like this. Green <laughs> gas. You have to see the gas to know he's being gassed. You can't just assume with a hissing noise that it's gas. Well, it is a movie. I don't I know. I mean, 
Why didn't he just start laughing? You know, like he got <laughs> some Smilex or something. <laughs> but uh, so he gets out, starts freaking out, passes out on the floor in the limo. Boom. From here, we begin, we got a lot of cuts going on. Oh this, yeah, there's so this, much this inter- segment. Yeah, they intercut like hell during all it is, this. It is super annoying. I mean, well, and I, I feel- I'm okay with fast cuts, but. This one, and I know they were doing the pace of story, but man, it's a boop, boop. You don't get a time to focus on anything. Yeah. It just adds to the convolution of this movie. Mm -hmm. It's like they couldn't figure out any other way to solve some of these story problems or. or... Right. It's almost as if, since you're going to have Tom Cruise being in somebody else's face for a while, that you have to make sure there's enough Cruise time with his face on somebody else. So you have the proper percentage of cruise to everyone else in the film. <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, so we cut here to Naya making sure that Ambrose is gone, um, at which point she tries to make a break for it. In bare feet. In bare feet. <laughs> she goes outside and is really caught off guard by who she thinks is Ethan. Really not Ethan. No one's going to be surprised by this. Which begs the question, is Ambrose really as short as Ethan Hunt? Because we all know nobody's actually that short. And I like I like how he makes they make a point. He's smiling in just about every version of this. Oh of yeah, him, right. Whenever whenever Ambrose is imitating Ethan, he's always smiling. Smiling, right? And he's like, and it's always kind of this. Tom Cruise does a good job of giving off a slightly sinister smile when he's he per, when he's portraying Ambrose, Ambrose as him. It's his eyes. Yeah. When he when Tom Cruise smiles, smiles, his eyes smile with him. Right. But somehow he managed to just have that sort of dead eye smile going. You know, so anybody who says Tom Cruise can't act, you just watch this scene. You could tell he's genuinely playing a different character as himself. Yeah, exactly. So in that respect, it's pretty decent. It is pretty decent. But, you know, you're jumping back and forth, you know. Well, and again. here's my here's my other problem with this moment is... Okay, she's hugging him. She's right next to his face. Come on. You're not going to smell whatever that mask is made of. It's He's mm-hmm. going to smell weird. He's going to look a little off. I don't care how good that fucking mask is, man. <laughs> like, that's, that's, a, that's the thing. This tech mask technology they have has a lot of loopholes in it that just... Yeah. It's know. just... It will, and I feel like the mask technology thing works... So long as you're at least 10 feet away from the per- the other person. Yes. Like, I'm willing to go down the rabbit hole with you so long as the person wearing the mask is at least maybe even six feet away. Sure. You can't be, like, hugging and embracing someone with a mask on and not know it's a mask. Come on. The only, the only thing I could say is, you know, because the first movie, they kind of showed how the masks are manufactured. Right. Right. There's mm-hmm. none of that pretense in this at all, which makes me wonder if they're just carrying around masks in the back of their bags. Yeah, well, and we get to that towards the end of this movie right. too, where it's just like, but, oh, oh, so he's got he's got these masks in his bag just in case. Exactly, and I mean, maybe you're going if you're going to buy into the technology, you got to buy into it 100. <laughs> percent I suppose so. Maybe so. these are some sort of synthetic skin right. or something like that that gives off normal odors. I mean, you could reasonably explain why it does it. If you're willing to buy in the fact that they can make them in the first place. It's it's like the whole Star Trek universe science and buying into yep. the, the rules which apply in a st- yeah. Yep. So, anyway. They just say they don't really establish that because most people watching the movie are probably thinking about the smell of latex. 
Right. That's just us. That's just That's me. Just you and me. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so you know. That's just our what problem. I will say is is if Ethan has to infiltrate, uh, say, like uh, a makeup studio for Hollywood, that those masks probably wouldn't work. <laughs> ah, so anyway, we get our first cut back to the hospital where Chloe is now quarantined. He's in an air tent. I mean, the whole Megillah in there, right? Yeah. Um, he opens his eyes and he sees Dr. Nikorovich, who we all know is dead, but he doesn't really know he's dead. Um, so he's very confused. Uh, Nikorovich is telling him he's infected with Chimera. McCloy basically assumes that Nekrovich faked his death and then stole Chimera and Bellerophon. McCloy essentially then confesses to killing the other doctor with Chimera because he didn't know there was a 20-hour deadline for the virus with Bellerophon. So all of this is being said more or less to... Uh, to get to him of, to confess. Right, to get him to confess to what's going on. So they can confirm exactly what's happening here. So Ethan knows where to go right. uh, on the next point. Uh, he also confesses that he had purposely wanted to create Chimera so he can make billions off of the cure. Bellerophon, right. mm-hmm. which that's pretty fucking sinister, no matter how you look at it. Oh, yeah. It's fairly apropos in uh, 2021, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, this feels like it would be more relevant now than in 2000, but I'm guessing pharmaceutical companies were still bastards in 2000 as well so they've always been bastards so you know so don't don't start getting on the whole you know the whole thing about you know maybe coronavirus was generated for this for all reason but yeah we don't we don't need any of that nonsense we don't need to get all crazy like that (laughs) so he also mentions that he has the virus and thinks that nikorovich has the cure at this point, Nikorovich walks out of the room, pulls off his mask. Boom, what a surprise. It's Ethan, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so this was essentially another mousetrap to get McCloy to talk, which worked. Um, I will say <laughs> I was impressed by uh, Rade's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I can't even say his name without looking at it. Right, I right. was impressed by his performance in not looking like the character he played at the beginning of the movie yeah he was able to put some cruisisms in there it felt like yeah exactly he was able to just ever so slightly modify it so that it was believable that ethan was under there right and so you basically had him playing a little version of tom cruise and tom cruise playing a version of tom not tom cruise but the really the two things that were the best part of these hard cuts was that you were getting two performers acting like other people and doing a very good job of it. Right. Yeah. So we cut back over to the fake Ethan, which kind of feels like it, that was thrown in there specifically to show people in case you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. That's the bad Ethan. Well, and you, that was and you, the good Ethan. Right. Well, and you'll notice too that the way that they cut it, they did a direct face to face cut. First, yep. you see Ethan right after he takes the mask off. Exact same shot, but it's Ambrose with the Ethan yes, mask on. Exactly. So in case any of the slow people out there hadn't figured it out, now you know. Um, <laughs> so we're back to the fake Ethan is with Naya. Naya's like, you're, you're here to get me out, right? Because you told me that I needed to leave and get out. You were very insistent that I not be here anymore. Well, it's funny, too, that he's in tactical gear and looks like he's ready to get her out. Get her out, right. And then he doesn't do anything. <laughs> no. But he says, no, 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 no. You got to stay. <laughs> stay cooperate. It's very important that you remain and cooperate. Okay. So she runs back into the house and then uh, you know, evil, bizarre world. Ethan smiles like a psycho. Perhaps an American psycho. (laughs) 
then pulls off the mask and reveals himself as Ambrose. And how how prevalent is this mask making technology in the world that a bad guy has it? Well, I mean, he's a former IMF agent, so that's Do they the... give them to everybody. This is part of your kit. Here's your laser wristwatch. <laughs> here's your mask here's your maker. Explo- here's your explodey gum, and here's your mask maker in a briefcase. Have fun. <laughs> it's it's like swag. They give them all exactly. swag. <laughs> This is so. This is your new hire kit. Here's your handbook. Uh, here's a pen, a coffee mug. Here's your key lanyard, your laser wristwatch, a pack of exploding gum, and don't forget, here is your mask making kit. Don't lose this. You're probably going to need it later, especially when you defect. Especially when you defect. We can make sunglasses that blow up on command. We can make cassette tapes that blow up on command. But we can't make mass making briefcases blow up on command, which you think we might be able to do because of the importance of the mass making technology. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so we cut back to the hospital where McCloy is at, where Ethan and Luther are trying to figure out that how Ambrose is blackmailing uh, McCloy so that he can get the virus, which means that he doesn't actually have it yet, which kind of makes sense. The virus was inside. Nikorovich. That's right. how he was smuggling the virus out. Right. For all the slow learners who weren't paying attention at the very beginning that he injected himself with it. If he had the virus. Right. And it explains that Ambrose basically didn't know what Chimera was. Right. At, at the time that he stole Bellerophon from the doctor. Right. And I mean, again, the logic here makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he had an evil plan to begin with, he should probably know that this is a virus that he's stealing. Right. right. But he doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't know. The, the whole yeah. thing is just very weird. Yeah. Um, I mean, I understood he injected himself because he wasn't going to be able to get the virus through. Although he got somehow managed to get the antidote through airport security, but he could get the virus through am- airport security. And he injected himself with that window because he knew he was safe for those 20 hours to right. show up with it in his blood. He has the antidote. Sure, his plan was... I'm going to take some of that antidote after I get there so I don't die. Right. I don't know. (laughs) The whole thing. I don't don't like virus stories as much as I don't like list stories for much the same reason. They just, they're too dependent upon the MacGuffin. At least they tried to spice this one up a little bit. Yeah. They throw you some curveballs, but at the end of the day, it's just, it's just dumb. And I can't say anything more about it. But um, so we cut back to the hospital. We're figuring out that uh, that Ambrose doesn't have the virus yet. And so they know he has to go get the virus in order to make it worthwhile. Right. Sort of setting up the showdown, sort of getting right. us to the point where it's this race to see who's going to get the virus. Exactly. And so they know that there's still some left in the lab. Hugh then makes Ambrose aware that Ethan captured McCloy. Which again, I totally missed that. I don't yeah. even remember that at all. <laughs> um, and so knowing that that he's good, that that Ethan's going to try to break into biocytes. So because they um, both know that they both know the same thing now, and yeah, everybody's on the same page. Now it's a race to see who gets the the gooey stuff first, right? Yeah. Um, so we get to this uh, silly little moment where uh, Billy drops off McCloy at his home, uh, waking him up with a loud honk. But uh, <laughs> yeah, huh, yeah. Why? Okay. Oh my god, dude. Why would they do? Okay, they just managed to nab the head of this company, 
They're the IMF. They've already got a confession from him, which means that they could tell the head of the IMF, this is what's going on. We need to stop it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to force McCloy to give us the virus because we Mm -hmm. already have him in custody. Instead, Mm -hmm. they let him go. What? It's dumb. This is the dumbest part of the whole thing. If you've got him, he has access to everything. Exactly. Force him at gunpoint. Give me the virus. There's the end of the movie. You don't don't even have to force him at gunpoint. You say, look, now that we know that you did this, you either cooperate with us or we send you to jail. One way or the other. Right. Ethan puts on a mask where he looks like somebody else. They walk into the building. They get the thing. He says, by the way, we're going to fuck you over anyway. You're going to jail. Aha, bad man. And then off they go. Or (laughs) they're like, you know, you get to stay, but you have to sign over all your shares to the World Wildlife Federation or something. (laughs) And, you know, they give him some penalty. They send him on his way and movie's over. You you could have done it in slow motion. (laughs) You could have done it in slow motion. And then it still would have been... Who is <laughs> Yes, yes, it would have. But unfortunately, logic, as we're going to see, is going to fly completely out the window. Oh my as we god! Get into Act Three, so <laughs> um, we move along. Ethan and the boys are examining the layout to the biosite building because it's much better to break in and steal it without anybody knowing than to just walk into the building with the guy that could just scan it has a key to everything yeah exactly maybe we don't want to do that at all we get this uh intercutting of ethan figuring out his plan versus ambrose correctly and arrogantly telling everybody how the plan is going to go including the line he'll risk some sort of acrobatic insanity over harming a hair in a security guard's head i love that that's a great clearly means it is he obviously watched the first movie so (laughs) he's a fan I just cannot get over how much there's so much exposition leading up to the third act. Yes. Because the ent- almost the entire third act is a set piece, like one long set piece. And yep. uh, the, like this, this VO from him and the VO from the doctor and the VO mm-hmm. from it feels like everybody. <laughs> like yeah. telling the viewer what the hell is going on since this movie is such a mess. Right. Like they, well, they, and, they fall back on that over and over and over again. Right. And there's so little action after yeah. that car scene up until you get all the action in the third scene or third, yeah. third act. Yeah. Which it's like everything John Woo wanted to do either ended up in the third act or ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. So I think there would uh, yeah. have been. Yeah. I think there would have been a lot more action in the John Woo cut. It's funny too, because yeah. so I tweeted some stuff when I f- watched this movie for the first time for this show. <laughs> and I tweeted about how it was this ridiculous movie. And I was just sort of grabbing, just sort of holding my head, trying to steady myself after watching it and how ridiculous <laughs> it was. But I also mentioned the fact that, you know, there was an hour and a half cut out of the woo cut. And that got started a hashtag briefly of release the woo cut. Like instead of, because re- <laughs> instead of, instead of release the Snyder cut, release the woo cut. <laughs> if it was anything like the Snyder cut, we're all a little better off for it being shorter. Indeed. But, uh, so speaking of woo, we get a little bit more silly woo photography at this part, but, uh, we learned that, Here's the here's the uh, the thing that uh, that that drives the drama for the the next yes. scene. Ethan only has forty seconds to get through an air vent that opens cyclically, 
drop down and land, retract the cables before the vents close, or it will set all the sensors off. And when these alarms go off, even Luke says, I can't shut those over. That's the city or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they're a biopharmaceutical company. And if stuff gets released improperly, people are going to die. Right? right. So that's how you know that there's going to be some kind of drama with him yeah. getting in. And <laughs> yeah. at least, you know, God love them. They didn't have, you know, Pressure sensitive floors, temperature monitoring. <laughs> if they'd have tried that, that worked in the first movie. If they tried to bring that shit back in the second movie, oh, I God. think a lot of people would have revolted. Well, I mean, they're already rehashing the fact that he's retracting down exactly, you know, vertically. It's just much bigger this time. Right. But at least they got rid of all those things that you're talking about. Right. It's not the perfect room. Now it's just timing. Yep. And that's, you know, I probably the, the key difference between. The scene in Mission Impossible in this one. Brian De Palma knows how to build suspense. <laughs> Woo. John Woo knows how to hang people off of wires. Right. <laughs> and you're seeing both their specialties in each one of those similar scenes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because let's face it, if you've got those wires in the movie, something could cut them and then the actor could get hurt. So it's definitely uh, a <laughs> But anyway... So we've established a plan. Ethan's going to go in and do something acrobatic and not harm a hair on people's heads. And there's danger involved. And we move into act three. Do you love making action movies, but just can't get enough dramatic action into them? Well, worry no more because the answer to all your dramatic action sequences is here. The John Woo School of Action Movie Cinematography. JWSAMC will teach you how to shoot kicky flippy wire fights. Sideways double fisted gunfights. Carefully orchestrated slow motion scenes, including Woo's signature slow mo doves flying for dramatic effect. Learn all these techniques and many, many more to make your action sequences longer, more dramatic, and more ridiculous. After graduating from this 18-week course at the JWSAMC, you will become a true Hong Kong action director extraordinaire. Your audiences won't just yell woohoo at your films, they'll scream woo as fuck. Woo as fuck. All right. Act three. Wow. Buckle up, kids. <laughs> so from here, we get the nighttime aerial shots of the biosite building with Ethan and Billy in the chopper getting a position over the atrium, which, again, monitored airspace. Anyone? I'm just. Yeah. You can't just fly yeah. a helicopter in downtown anywhere. Not really. No. I mean, I don't know what the rules are in Australia, but or where is biosite? Is it in Australia? I think it is, actually, is it? because okay. everything's in Australia there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's silly. Whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Luther, as usual, is in a van, probably down by the river, <laughs> doing Luther things, trying to get the vent open. So this is a point of confusion for me. Maybe you can help me out. I Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out why Ethan and Billy were like, we got to go now. I think I actually, you know what? I just, I think I just figured it out in my head and you find it out later though. The problem is it's not explained until later that at 2300 hours and one minute, 
the air filtration generators will cover the sound of Ethan breaking in. So they oh, must sure. So they must be looking at their watch going, we got to go. That's what I'm guessing. That's why okay, I'm the, that makes sense. Because I was trying to figure it out, like all while I was writing my notes for this, I was like, why are they so hellbent on, we got to jump, I got to jump, I got to jump, I got to jump. And Luther's like, don't jump yet. I haven't opened the vent yet. And I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, but I think it's because that's when the air filtration generators come on. And right. so they're trying to meet that moment. So, yeah, I, I like I said before, I, I started losing cohesion on this thing yeah. both times by the time I got here. So that makes sense, though. Yeah. So I'll run with it. <laughs> so anyway, they build all this. The music is really loud in this area and they really try and like push the, the tension here. But Ethan makes the jump with blind faith and Luther getting those vents open. Which, of course, right as he gets to the vent, the vents slowly open and Ethan slips right through. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's falling, falling, falling down this atrium with, with a cable, you know, holding him. But the ridiculous part of this is it definitely doesn't look like Ethan is controlling the speed of the fall very much. Like, right. at all. Like, so he's falling very fast. Many stories. Yes. So... So to stop on a dime at the bottom and be fine, like his hands aren't shredded, even if you're wearing gloves, dude, I'm sorry, but mm -hmm. your hands aren't shredded. You're not jolted into like back problems. <laughs> like there's nothing here. It's just fine. Okay. Movies, whatever. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so he gets to the bottom of this thing and he's still hanging by the wire. And there's a, of course, there's a window there and some guys walking by with a clipboard. So he does this little flippy thing and he gets just above the window as the guy walks by. And then after the guy walks by, he does another flippy thing. And as he's flipping, he lets go of the cable and lands on the ground. And then the cable starts being retracted up into the, into the helicopter. But this is the part that doesn't make any sense either. Ethan's being absolutely silent during this moment. So how does Billy know that he can start retracting the cable? He just, like, blind faith again? Okay, sure. They had to get the cable moving or it was going to do it. So if Ethan was attached to it one way or the other, they needed to get him out. I guess. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, he's, I mean, he's pulling the cable. If Ethan was attached, it means Ethan gets out before the vents close and they don't set the sensors off. If Ethan's not attached, they need to get the cable up there so it doesn't set the sensors off. So either right. way, it either was way. go, no, go. You had to go. Right. Okay. So anyway, so Ethan activates his tracking transponder and begins to cut into the glass to get to the lab below. Meanwhile, we get yet more exposition from smarmy ass Ambrose. Like he's so proud of himself during this whole like thing. And I'm like, who is he talking to? Is he just talking to Hugh in a room? And he's just, but it, it's just, he, it looks like he's looking into the mirror, proud of himself while he's saying all this shit. I don't know. Anyway, so Ambrose is telling us uh, that exactly 2301, the air filtration generators will cover the sound of Ethan breaking in. Uh, we also hear Luther explain over the radio that there will be no ability to talk over the radio for exactly eight minutes. Then we see Ethan uses fancy laser. CO2, CO2 laser. It's got to be a CO2 laser. It had to be a CO2 laser. Always. <laughs> Always. That's standard spy issue these days. That's right. Comes with the swag. <laughs> so cuts through the glass. 
And as he's walking in, we get more exposition from smarmy-ass Ambrose about how Ethan will prefer to destroy Chimera over taking it with him, and that he'll need to get it from both the incubation room and the inoculation chamber. So Ambrose then finishes with saying that Ethan won't be able to destroy the virus contained in the inoculation chamber guns, meaning that he intends to stop him. And then we immediately cut to Ambrose and his men walking into the front door of the building. And of course, as soon as they walk in the front door, they kill the security guard at the front desk and they make their way up. What is it like 47 floors or something like that? Mm -hmm. So then we're back to Ethan putting on a mask. Uh, not that kind of mask. <laughs> hey, <laughs> yeah, I have to delineate which you, one you're talking about. You do. It's a contamination mask this time, kids. So, so he puts on this protective gear and whatnot, and then again using a voice recording of McCloy to get into this instead of just bringing McCloy with him. Exactly. Anyway, so he goes into this incubation room, all you know, suited up. And then we have Luther telling Billy that he's picked up Nia's tracker in the building and that she's headed towards Ethan, which means that Ambrose is definitely with her. Meanwhile, we see Ethan using the lab's laser thingy, I guess, to heat up the, the live, to kill the live viruses that are in the incubation room. Right. And we sort of get that little death counter. Temperature critical. <laughs> viruses can no longer survive in this heat environment. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> Nice to know that. That's that's the thing I love about spy movies, though, is that all the computers have these nice ladies talking. Even our show has a nice lady talking. Yeah, our CIC computer is a very nice lady voice. So. She's, hey, she's a babe, let me tell you. I've met her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I live with her. That's right. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> so after he kills the viruses, um, he sets this little remote explosive charge at the controls. And then he exits and moves over to the inoculation chamber. Meanwhile, there's some chatter over the radio between Luther and Billy about yeah. the fact that Naya and Ambrose are making their way towards Ethan. And since they can't talk to him, we get this great line from Luther where he goes, he says that he hopes Ethan kills the bugs before the little yellow dot gets to the red dot <laughs> on his screen. Right. <laughs> anyway. So Ethan slowly, oh God, this part kills me too. Ethan walks so slowly to this inoculation chamber and then he kills the virus in the first two guns. And then we get this long drawn out pause where he thinks about, for some reason, he, he like starts thinking back about Dr. Nekovich giving himself the virus. And I, the only thing that I can come up with is, is he thinking about giving himself the virus? Like, is he thinking about doing the same thing here? I don't know. But before I feel like he was putting two and two together at that point, realizing that Nekrovich had injected himself to get the virus out of the facility. Oh, okay. That would make sense. And it's sort of a call back to where he was standing. He's like, Oh, this this, this must have been how he got it out. This is why he didn't have the virus in the case with the cure. Ah, uh, he did this to himself. Right. And that's why he was able to sort of talk shit to Ambrose later on in the firefight that we're going to talk about in just a few. Right. So before he can kill that last virus in the in the final gun, Ambrose and his men intervene and there's a firefight and they shoot out all this glass everywhere. And the virus gun falls away from Ethan and we get full on John Woo style firefight in the lab with Ethan spinning around like double guns with a 
jacket on like he's chow yun fat oh and, yeah and i have to admit that was one moment where i was like that was so very <laughs> that i could get into it <laughs> oh, and like, very appropriate for the moment yes it was finally appropriate and it worked so well right there i loved it so anyway so then we cut to Luther, who's saying to Billy that there's only 30 more seconds before the generators turn off and he can talk to Ethan again. Um, but that's when one of Ambrose's men plants a bomb under Luther's van. Jason's shaking his head. Yes. Why couldn't Luther be in the helicopter? There's no, well, unless the van has some sort of satellite technology that's. Did you see all of the, <laughs> the data electronic equipment that was attached to this helicopter the whole time? I don't buy it. Yeah, you're probably right. But anyway, he's in a van. Continue. He's in a van, and there's a somebody plants a bomb under the van. So suddenly he's scrambling to get out of it. But you you don't mention you have to mention how he notices there's a, a bomb under his van though. Well, he sees that reflection, isn't it, in like a puddle or something? In a puddle. Yeah. So that's kind of a nice little moment where he, he sees the countdown happening in the puddle. Yep. And it looks like actually when the when the van explodes, it looks like he's a goner. But you know, this is Luther, so obviously not. Uh, who else is going to have the meats? Damn right. Um, so can't anyway, kill Luther. That's right. So anyway, we cut back to the lab and we even get Ethan sliding across the floor with double guns. Kind of, <laughs> kind of awesome. Kind of love it. Ethan is trying to get back the injection gun, which is now sort of dancing across the glass as the bullets are flying. And that's when Ambrose tells his men to stop firing for fear of destroying the last sample. Uh, and then we get this classic, this very tropey mid-battle villain talking to hero moment where they're all sort of uh, reloading. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of the scene in Gross Point Blank where uh, yes. Cusack's character is talking to uh, Dan Aykroyd in the kitchen. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd's in the kitchen and John Cusack is in the dining room or something. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And they're all reloading. Yep. Good stuff. Um, so, so Ambrose is talking shit about impersonating Ethan and having to keep a smile on his face or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> but Ethan then mocks Ambrose for not even knowing what Chimera actually was, and that by killing Nekrovich, he was destroying the very thing that he needed in the first place. At this point, Ethan eggs on more gunfight. Um, but Ambrose stops it again. And the funniest line in the whole movie, because it's probably not intended to be funny, is he says, put a sock in it. Ambrose yells, put a sock in it. And I'm like, that, okay, okay. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> a terrorist is going to yell, put a sock in it. But oh, yeah, it's a common line for terrorists. Oh, yeah. And it's so well known worldwide. <laughs> right. <laughs> So anyway, then Ambrose pulls his final card and brings Naya out and threatens to kill her if she isn't allowed to walk over and pick up the injection gun off the floor and bring it to him. Meanwhile, we see a super roughed up Luther finally establish communication with Ethan, telling him all too late that, that Naya's in the building, which obviously he already knows. And I felt like that was intended to be funny, but it was like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, it's just really more just to let us know Luther's alive. Than anything else. Yeah. So then we get this long, drawn-out moment of Naya standing over the gun. A lot of long, drawn-out moments in this movie. In a woo uh, movie? In a woo movie? No. Um, of Naya standing over the gun, the injection gun. Well, Ethan says out loud to Naya that Ambrose will probably shoot her, 
the moment he's got the virus, or yeah, the moment he's got the virus. Ambrose then says some sexist thing about women being monkeys, and I'm not even going to say the whole line because it's because it's awful. It is awful. Anyway, she's clearly thinking. I mean, to Wu's credit, he keeps Naya's character smart and thinking about what she's doing and capable. So I'll give I'll give Wu that. I won't give him much more. <laughs> so anyway, she's so she's standing over this gun and she's clearly thinking about what she's actually going to do. And then really, really quickly, she she grabs the gun and injects the virus into herself, forcing Ambrose not to kill her. And Ambrose is now like, you know, gritting his teeth and wringing his hands and he doesn't know what to do now. Again, when does this, when does she become contagious? Biology? Hello? Anyway. 20 hours. 20 hours. Oh, sure. Okay. 20 hours. So anyway, Ethan sets his watch for 20 hours and then sets off the bomb in the incubation room to sort of distract everyone. Um, the alarms go off and guards start rushing towards whatever floor they're on. And we get the super overdramatic thing between Ethan and Naya about whether or not she's got a conscience because they had this little wordplay when mm-hmm. they first met about whether or not, you know, I'm a thief. I don't have a conscience. Uh, you know, so now they're right. trying to bring bring that back. It's just sort of eh. anyway, the firefight ensues with Ethan trying to get himself and Naya out of the building. Naya suggests that Ethan kill her. And Ethan, of course, is sort of hell bent on getting Bellerophon for her before then. And right before anything else happens, he basically says, stay alive or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then um, Ethan throws another bomb towards this wall. Apparently, he's very aware of the. Uh, geography of this building because of course it's an exterior wall that he blows up which allows Mm -hmm. him to then make a run for it and jump out of the building and parachute down leaving Naya with Ambrose and I'm still a little sketchy I know they kind of explain it in the scene but why could he just take Naya with him yeah I'm not quite sure why he couldn't just have (laughs) her hold on to him yeah his parachute couldn't handle two people yeah seems a little silly and I might add too that no one fights him on his way down in the parachute, meaning mm-hmm. that he would have landed safely with Naya. I mean, they would have crashed a little hard, but they would still be both alive and he'd have Naya. Broken bones. There's a helicopter waiting for you. I'm just saying. Right. Case closed, man. Yeah. This, these are two. That's two case closed. We've already gone past. <laughs> anyway, so we cut to the next day and we see Ambrose on his way to meet with McCloy in the car with Naya. And while Ethan is explaining to Luther and Billy that Naya will probably just kill herself if they don't get her the vaccine in time. He's like, Naya's going to do Naya. We just need to worry about stopping all this. So then we see, so this is another part that confuses the living shit out of me because then we see this biosite facility, which is not the building, it's not the the skyscraper, it's on this island-looking area. And Ethan is sneakily climbing up the backside of, how does he know this is where they're meeting? They never, ever established that he knows where this meeting is taking place. I've yet to figure out where along this timeline that Ethan has figured out where they're meeting. There's nothing there. It's literally just... We can't have motorcycle fights inside a building in a skyscraper, although you totally could. You totally yeah. could. It'd but, be awesome. But. <laughs> but, but yeah, I don't understand it either. There's that obvious callback to him climbing on rocks from the yeah. beginning of the movie. There's a whole bunch of things here, but there's nothing that really explains 
why Ethan knows they're there in the first place or why I, they're there in the first place. Yeah. I just remember watching this and, and seeing him climb up this and I'm, and immediately I'm like, wait, Biosite has an underground layer. Wait, Ethan knows that they're meeting here. Wait, how? <laughs> and let me point out to you, if this is an actual pharmaceutical laboratory that they have underground, they need to get those pigeons under control. That's serious. Those things spread disease like a mother. No kidding. <laughs> you would think they would have better pest control you know, security over at this underground facility. Yeah. Oh, God. So anyway, so he gets up to the top of climbing this thing and he's up on the green area of it and he kills a security card with a front flip bicycle kick while birds oh. are while birds are taking off at the same time Who is <laughs> i mean it doesn't get more woo as fuck than that but but wait there's more oh, it, doesn't, <laughs> we, it doesn't stop we get even more woo as fuck so <laughs> So he then goes down a drainage gate or something. And meanwhile, down inside this lair, it's, it's about all I can really call it because that's what it looks like inside, even though it's totally supposed does. to be part of a biochem company. Makes no sense. Anyway, so McCloy is meeting with Ambrose, who now has both Chimera and Bellerophon. But wait, can the virus even be transported in blood? Here's That's the other part of this. Is like That makes me think about the very beginning of the movie when the doctor injects himself with the virus mm -hmm. and then gets into the plane, why didn't he, if he's trying to transport it, why didn't he infect himself, extract blood while he's infected, then give himself the antidote, then take the two vials with him on the airplane instead of being infected with it? Well, precisely. Or the fact that the virus or that the antidote likely contains the virus in it. In it. And you could have reverse engineered the, the virus. virus. From oh, my the, God. The science on this is very, <laughs> very sketchy. Yeah. Even with the internal logic of the movie, the virus is a MacGuffin. And so <laughs> it, it drives yeah. the plot forward, but it doesn't necessarily serve any logical purpose. And you're absolutely right. I hadn't even thought about that. He could have infected himself, taken the infected blood, unless this 20-hour window doesn't affect the cell structure until that point. Well, here's the thing, though. Didn't he extract the blood? So when he go, when Ambrose goes to meet McCloy in this lair, isn't he extracting the blood from Naya? And Naya hasn't had 20 hours yet. Where is he getting this blood from? Didn't he? I thought he still had the vi No, she injected it. You're right. So you're right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Because if he could get the <laughs> virus from her blood. Yes. Then Dr. Nikorovich could have gotten the virus from his blood. That's right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can we just stop now? I had to do it again. <laughs> oh my God. This is so the snake eating its own tail. I just. So anyway, <sighs> let's just, let's just try and finish because there's so much good stuff in here. <laughs> so, so he's there to get his payout from McCloy Ambrose. And. So meanwhile, we see more birds and slow motion while Ethan takes out more guards inside the lair. Who is fuck? We cut back and McCloy scientist is verifying the virus and the vaccine. And as McCloy is about to pay Ambrose, Ambrose explains 
He now also wants stock options in Biosite because he just dropped off Naya in a super populous part of Sydney. Oh, I see. She's now contagious. She's now Well, contagious. she's going to be. Right. So anyway. 20 hours. <sighs> anyway. He didn't, he didn't right. plan that she could just walk away and not contaminate anybody, but okay. Right. Yeah. Anyway, Ambrose explains he now wants... 51% controlling interest in biocyte. And if he doesn't get it, he'll take the virus elsewhere. We cut back to Ethan and he's doing a slow motion backflip kick, wire work, and birds all at once. I mean, <laughs> then we see Ambrose telling McCloy that the ball's in his court. Cut to Ethan outside the door now where the meeting is going on and he throws this bomb and they hear, they hear the clanging on the door and the guards walk up. And just as they nudge open the door, Ethan shoots the bomb. And now we get what is probably one of the most woo as fuck moments in the entire movie, which is, so the door blows open and it's fiery. It's a fiery doorway and there's smoke and a fucking dove flies through it. And Not a then, pigeon. Not a pigeon, a dove. A dove. And then Ethan just walks past, doesn't go in, just walks past and looks right in the eyes of Ambrose. I mean, if, if this doesn't, you know, deserve the sound effect. <laughs> Who is fuck? <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> anyway, so, so Tom Cruise smoldering as he walks past the doorway, looking at Ambrose. Um, Ambrose sends Hugh after him. Meanwhile, Ambrose turns around and looks at McCloy and is pressuring him to make the deal, you know, sort of brandishing his weapon in front of him. And then McCloy decides to just make the deal. So once again, we're waiting on computers. So as they're waiting for the funds to transfer, <laughs> we see Hugh and the other bad guys splitting up to look for Ethan. And then, of course, Ethan gets into a fight with Hugh. Another bird. There's another bird mm -hmm. in that fight, too. So Hugh sort of, like, gets the better of him for a second because he's got his gun on him. But Ethan's got a grenade in his hand. And so Ethan then, like, pulls the pin and throws the grenade. And the grenade blows up this nearby, of course, conveniently, there's a tank of gas or something nearby. And the grenade... Hazardous waste. What the fuck does that even mean? Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so the grenade blows up these tanks, a huge explosion, and then we don't see what actually happens during that moment because this is mm. where the this is where the magic happens, kids. So <laughs> so all we really see is just reactions to what's going on. We see uh Ambrose and uh McCloy sort of looking over at this giant explosion going on. Luther hears the explosion in his radio. So everybody's sort of freaking out as to what's happening. Finally, we hear over Ambrose's radio from Hugh that he's got Ethan. And then we also see that Sean's computer guy tells him that the transfer is done. But however, however, we hear Luther tell Billy to start the chopper and go, which means something is still going on with Ethan. Mm -hmm. So Sean thinks he's won. But then we see, quote unquote, Hugh coming in, dragging in, quote-unquote, Ethan on the floor. <laughs> and, quote-unquote, Ethan can't seem to talk all of a sudden, but Ambrose doesn't seem to smell what's really going on. Luther must not have been close enough for him to smell the meats. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he gets all happy. Ambrose gets all happy. And he shoots, quote-unquote, Ethan over and over again. Sort of that, 
he says something like, how's this for getting my gun off or whatever? And he Mm -hmm. unloads on him. But then upon closer examination, he sees that the person he's been shooting has a bandage on his pinky finger. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. It's Hugh and an Ethan mask. Apparently, Ethan put a sock in it. (laughs) Because Hugh couldn't talk. There you go. With the mask on. So, again, so Ethan's just breaking into this facility with a Hugh mask. Mm -hmm. He knew it. He's going to need that. Conveniently. And a mask of himself. Well, he's got to always have one of those. Come on. (laughs) So, anyway. So, Ambrose screams after pulling the Ethan mask off the real Hugh. We hear choir voices soar, and Ethan makes a break for it. And, uh... Who is fuck? Yeah. Pretty much. So... Ethan is making a break for the exit where Billy and Luther are. We get some Mission Impossible theme tunes. They're waiting in the chopper. But amidst the gunfire from the guards, Ethan waves them off and decides to leave by ground. Because mainly because John Woo needs a a motorcycle chase in this movie. Yes, he does. The remainder of this movie is just insane. Everything else, like from here on, it's just, it's insane. So we get this motorcycle. Well, actually, Ethan still has to get the motorcycle. So these two guys on motorcycles are chasing after Ethan, who's on foot at this point. We get all this John Woo style fighting and shooting and acrobatics and everything else. And finally, Ethan gets a motorcycle. He takes off to cross the bridge. So I don't know why they make a big deal out of this. Is it the bridge to freedom? To a, <laughs> is this to off the facility? The bridge to another world. I guess it's just to a di- off the facility. Anyway, so Luther's in the chopper and he's shooting at this car, you know, some of Ambrose's goons coming after Tom Cruise head on on this very narrow bridge. Ethan's on the motorcycle and he's about ready to kind of have a head on collision with these guys. Luther's shooting at him and they, I think they graze him or something, but he, he gets mad and he breaks out the grenade launcher and he hits the car and the car (laughs) flies off the bridge and the car lands in the water and Ethan shoots through the explosion, rides right through the flames. P.S. And by the way, Tom Cruise did this stunt and had zero flame retardant on him, which is fucking crazy, but that's Tom Cruise. That's Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is going to Tom Cruise. So then Luther uh, tries to assist again with another bad guy car Oh, that's when he gets grazed. So the second time. So the second bad guy car, he gets grazed in the shoulder. You put put a hole in my Versace. Yep. (laughs) But the thing is, while that's funny, that line was the thing that made me think this is this is what Luther's been reduced to in this movie is like Mm -hmm. punch is punchlines and and pretty much stuff like that. So anyway, so you think. Uh, takes care of it himself after doing this ridiculous endo thing with the motorcycle that you see in all the trailers. He whips around with this motorcycle endo and shoots the gas tank. Also, I should mention that there's a uh, goof in this movie. Imagine that. During that moment when he shoots the car and then he does the endo and then he shoots it again in the gas tank, he would have actually run out of ammunition on the first pass. And when he whips around, he never has a chance to actually reload. Not that that's, this isn't John Wick, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) John Wick is maybe one of the few movies where you see an accurate accounting of bullets as he goes through things. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty much a Hollywood trope that the hero has as many bullets in his gun as he needs. Right. Now, I will tell you, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when Indy's in there shooting in the Nepal in the bar, he reloads at the correct amount of time each time because that's Steven Spielberg. That's right. But this is, 
when I watch movies where there's big gunfights, I always count bullets, <laughs> particularly particularly in revolvers where you know there's only six. Right. <laughs> and it takes a long ass time to reload. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, so he shoots. Yeah, he does the endo move and he blows up that car. Ethan tells Luther and Billy to go ahead and meet Naya at the cliff that she's wandering to while Ethan is busy trying to evade the rest of the bad guys. Um, we get this shot of Naya stumbling her way to this cliff, looking very ill at this point. She's very pale. We cut back and Ethan sees this oncoming 18-wheeler at the next intersection and gets the idea to throw up a smoke screen by, I guess, I don't know much about motorcycles, but I guess he's burning his brakes while he's accelerating at the same time. I think it was. I think he was doing a burnout on the tire. Yeah. Which, by the way, effective in smoke screen. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I actually bought that. Right. Yeah. That that part actually was believable. So he makes this little smoke screen while he's accelerating, so that the guys behind him don't notice that this big wheeler truck is coming from the other direction. And Ethan makes a pass, and then the eighteen wheeler smashes into the car and takes that car out. Ethan then does yet another spin around trick to take out the very last SUV following him. So now it's just down to him and Sean, who's also on a motorcycle, and they do this head-on jousting type thing. And Ethan does the old (laughs) jump off the bike and slides on his shoes to hide behind the motorcycle. It's the old it's the old hide behind the horse trick from westerns, right? Right, exactly. And what's funny is is that you can actually see you can actually see the wheels on his shoes in the in the shot from behind him. <laughs> well, that's that's that is actually a standard IMF issue uh, phone or shoe phone slash roller skate feature um, that all the agents get. So it's right. it's easy to believe. It comes with the swag. <laughs> comes with the swag. <laughs> so then the chase goes off road and winds up at the the waterfront at this beach type area with Ambrose. Then we see Ambrose jumping his motorcycle over Ethan's. And then we get the final silly head-to-head <laughs> jousting again. And they jump off their bikes in air collision. The bikes collide in midair, exploding. Ethan and Sean fall what looks to be like 30 feet down. Like, it's a long-ass way. How, yeah. how neither one of them have broken it. I mean, listen. Who is fuck? So... Anyway, so apparently Ethan knows Capoeira <laughs> because of course he all, does because that's all I see in this fight during this whole thing is Capoeira moves. And then we cut back to Naya who's at the cliff and he's and she's pretty much ready to throw herself into the sea uh, while Ethan is absolutely getting his ass kicked right now. And then Ambrose breaks out a knife and we get that sh- and then we get that silly shot of the knife being a fourth inch from Ethan's eye. And supposedly, according to IMDb, I don't know if this is true, but apparently that's really Tom Cruise's eye. And supposedly they measured the distance exactly from the tip of the knife and like all this. Uh, uh, I don't know. That's a, don't know. That is a CGI knife. You think so? Bet on it. Bet on it. No, no, no. <laughs> anyway, so Ethan disarms him, but then stupidly throws the knife between his legs after being taunted by Ambrose about how Naya's going to die. So we get more macho punching and spinny kick from Tom. And uh, we go back to Naya, who's ready to jump. And the helicopter has finally found her. We cut back again and we get yet more, you know, jump kick and slow motion capoeira moves from Tom 
just as much woo as you can stand. At this point, the boys pick up Naya, who, again, apparently they're not afraid to be sitting next to this woman who has got the world's Typhoid Mary. Yeah, Typhoid Mary. They're just going to pick her up in the helicopter and sit, you know, a foot away from her, less, you know, whatever. Okay, sure. Anyway, and then we see Ethan's woo as fuck finishing move. He does this one last big kick and like, it literally looks like a finishing move from Mortal Kombat. It totally does. Like, <laughs> maybe that's what they were trying to emulate. So the helicopter arrives with Naya. And then we get this final thing where, of course, he's walking towards the helicopter with, with the vaccine to cure her. And that's when, of course, the, the monster who we thought was dead rises one last time to try and kill the hero and ambrose says you could you should have killed me or whatever <laughs> and then and then tom does the the little kicking the gun up off the sand after throwing the uh the vial of the antidote to luther yes he throws the the, the antidote first then he kicks up the gun spinny shoots him boom then they inject naya yay hopefully not the whole thing because everybody else in the helicopter still needed it Seriously, which it kind of looked like that was the only dose. Uh, just it's too bad that Luther has to die. I don't care about Billy though. No, I, I, I they didn't let me give a shit about him at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Luther has so much meat inside him that it probably <laughs> killed the virus anyway because he's that's got right. the meat. Well, and that's what how he came back in all the other movies. So exactly, you know, he was just he, he's got the meats, man. So. <laughs> So after, you know, they save the day and we get this uh, this silly look of Ethan looking into Naya's eyes at the helicopter and whatever that's supposed to mean at this. I know whatever that's supposed to mean at this point. So we cut to Ethan talking with Swanbeck, who is partially annoyed being the evil IMF director that he is, uh, that Ethan didn't get a live specimen of the virus. But of course, Naya's record is expunged. And then Ethan goes on vacation yet again. Uh, with Naya, and uh, apparently they're just going to stay in Sydney, you know, because they couldn't possibly be sick of that place at this point. Well, you know, lots to do in Sydney, and it's not like the IMF isn't going to know where he is anyway, so he might as well just stay somewhere where they know where he's at. Right. Exactly. And done. (sighs) That's it, man. We we made it. (laughs) We finally made it. Yes, we did. Listen. (laughs) Who is fuck? That's... That's all I got to say about that. That that is that that yes. I have no uh, I have no final thoughts other than this movie is ridiculous and, and it's makes, woo as fuck and it's woo as fuck and it makes no sense. Yeah, and you know the only saving grace of this movie is that it did so well that it allowed the next four or five to get yes, made. It allowed them to redeem themselves with much better spy movies. Absolutely, but. I said it earlier in the podcast. I will. I will never watch this one again. You know, I will. This is one of those movies where I will need at least a ten-year gap. I will probably maybe in ten years. I don't know. Maybe in ten years I'll watch it. But you know, after dissecting this thing, I'm just sort of like, oof. (laughs) See, I feel like I feel like the 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 movies going forward all kind of had a there's a throughput. They don't feel like it. They're individual movies that still feel like they chain up to one another. Right. They exist in the same universe. Right. They're a continuation of the previous story, not necessarily in a serialized manner. It's not like, you know, Star Trek three, Star Trek four, you know, where they were direct 
connections right. from two and, and everything else. But there's a there's a continuity in the next movies that right. I think adds a little bit to its charm. It does. It does. And they're sort of aware of where they leave the next movie to, to yeah. go. Right. Whereas this movie, you have no idea. Like this just, it's like an old school bond ending, to be honest. I mean, it's yeah. the, guy, the guy goes off with the girl into the sunset. And when you see him next time, he's by himself and you never hear about that girl ever again. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly it. And it's almost like this was the alternate first version of a Mission Impossible movie. Like, you know, let's try this out. Let's try this out. And then Abrams came on and said, no, we could we could kind of make this all into a thing. Yeah. That carries through. I still think that JJ's version is not the end version that is the best version. But it certainly but it kind of started it, on the right direction. It did get us started down the right direction. And I'm sure there was a lot of course correction after this happened for them mm-hmm. to sort of figure out where they really wanted to go with this so that it had any sort of ongoing shelf life. Right. Well, thank God they just didn't they didn't get another John Woo for number three because, yeah, you know, I feel like it, they wouldn't have had the same kind of numbers that this one did. People would have been like, I saw this before already. I don't really want to see it now. Yeah. Again. So I, I don't know. All I know is, is that we're done. Yes. The movie's done. The movie's done. If I ever have to-, to do a critique of a John non John Woo John Woo movie, I'll know where all my Woo as fuck moments are so I can point them out easily. That's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to move on to the, the next one, bigger and better. Yeah. But uh, as always, we are always looking for a listener interaction. Tell us how you like the podcast or, you know, if you have something you'd like to tell us about. Who is fuck? You know, if there's a woo as fuck moment that, that we missed, please let us know. <laughs> um, our email, <laughs> our, <laughs> our email is cicdeaddrop at gmail.com. Instagram is Central Intelligence Cinema, separated by underscores. Our Twitter is at CIC SpyPod. And also, if you do enjoy the podcast, we would absolutely love it if you helped us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that our show shows up faster when people search for stuff like this and we can grow a small little happy community from the Central. Yay! Because ultimately, that's my goal. Indeed. Make a little CIC gang. That's right. Hey, Ben, what's our next movie? (laughs) Well, Jason, I can see your excitement over there. And I'm happy to report that our next movie that we'll be reviewing is Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Yay! And I would like to point out that this is upon request from one of our listeners, Evan Marquez, a friend and listener of CIC requested this. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, we'll be happy to review this. Jason is more than happy to review this movie. Oh, yes. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. So, uh, so yeah, that's about it. So with that, I'm Ben. I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis. And more not woo as fuck mayhem. Mayhem. <laughs>